told you before, I didn't want you to read this crap. I never saw such rotten crap in my life. Where do you get this shit? Who sells it to you? I'm talking to you, young man. You want to answer me when I'm talking to you. You remember who puts the friggin' bread on the table around here, don't you? Stan, don't be too hard on him. All the kids read him. My boy isn't all the kids. You want to know where this is going, Billy? In the garbage. Right into the friggin' garbage. Now, you got any smart mouth about that? No, it's any worse than the books you keep in your dresser. Those ones under your underwear. Those sex books. Stan, you didn't have to hit him. Not only do I find out he's reading this crap, he's a goddamn little snoop as well. No, it wasn't like that! Stand for me to get your conflict on Sunday! The windows are open downstairs. I better get on a close and the rain will get in. No, I'll do it. I got some garbage I want to throw away. Daddy, please don't throw it away. I'm sorry. The next time, young man, I find you with a worthless piece of shit like this again, you won't sit down for a week, buddy boy. Remember that. Tuck in. Hi, I'm Sanford Green, uh, co-creator of the upcoming image series Bitter Roots. And you're listening to 11 O'Clock Comics. I don't know. Should we go with that one, Jason? Oh, high pitch. Like well, high pitch, Eric. Yeah. I say we leave it. Ooh, high pitch. <laughs> I'm enjoying the stern. For you stern fans, I think, yeah. Yeah, I'm enjoying it. I yeah, finally they, got it back. they adjusted to the COVID in a I never thought possible. Yeah. It's good stuff. Howard's so a creature of habit and so into his setup and seeing everybody and having the chemistry and the timing of knowing who to talk and when. And, uh, and he really has embraced it. It's It's been great. There's definitely a difference between recording with a bunch of guys in a room and doing this distance stuff. You can't see your faces. You can't watch your your body language when when you know. Well, yeah. No. I mean, no, I don't. I think it's better when we're all together, but it's rare that we ever get to do that. Yeah. True. Especially with no cons. Yo. Aye. No cons. Although it looks like New York is still. <laughs> <laughs> I just got an email from them saying, "Hey, we're going to extend the deadline to." Apply. Yeah. They still. <laughs> Yeah, I think they're trying to. I mean, obviously, it, it's. I mean, it's got to be a hor- horrifically bad year financially for Reed. Uh, so I'm sure they'll keep hope alive as long as they can. I mean, I'm, I think we're, we're collectively not counting on it. But obviously, the nice thing about New York is that it's our home show. So if it if it does happen, we can kind of last minute it. But uh, yeah, we're gonna have to do some soul searching if we're gonna go to New York, like. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that that's like a breeding ground mm. i will be with you guys but i don't think i need to be inside jeff it's like we will hang out for yeah sure. that makes sense to Maybe me without going inside that building yeah and you're getting it right now because this is 11 o'clock comics episode 676 and i'm vince b you are vince b i am david a price that is very true and fresh off my eisner nomination i'm the freak you definitely are that, uh, but you're also Jason Wood, everybody, and we have not one, but two guests for you this week. Woo. Yeah, 
They run in tandem currently. One of them, you've heard here before, so he's a veteran. Damn the best illustrator on the planet right now, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, I've I said it before. I've said it before. I know you have. You're consistent. Let's put it this way. He draws the stuff my eyes want to see. Yes. Uh, and he has currently has a book coming out from the publisher of Ad House, who is Chris Pitzer, and he's here with us. And the artist in question, you already know, it's Matthew Allison. Hey, everybody. Hello. What, and what's up, Chris? Hey, Matt. <laughs> How's it going, Chris? Long time no see. Pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Do, do these guys know that we met last week? Um, oh, no. Possibly through my Instagram post, but it was very vague. Uh, no, I yeah. I didn't tell them actually. Yeah. All the boxes. Uh, well, yeah, actually, I was. Um, uh, my wife and I decided to take a road trip to her mother and or my mother in laws out in Richmond, and um, Chris and I got to to spend a little time socially distanced, but within the same area uh, with each other while I was there. So. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I gave I gave Matthew two options. I was like, I can gather a socially distant party of, you know, like-minded cartoonists, or we can go to Jason Hamlin's garage and dig through his inventory. (laughs) And which do you think he picked? (laughs) I think he picked the one we all would have picked. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Speaking of inventory, (laughs) this episode, as always, has been brought to you by Discount Comic Book Service, dcbservice.com. Get your books, get them fast, get them delivered right to your door for a fraction of the price everybody else is paying. The previews is out. Uh, is the list up yet? Does anybody know? I haven't checked, I must admit. But Okay, so you know the drill. Even if the list isn't up, you know, you can anticipate that the discounts will be both deep and plentiful. And it's a double month. It so not. it's not? It still says April 2020. Well, the previews is double. The list, uh, David means the list isn't up. Oh, yeah. Right, the DCBS website hasn't been updated, right? Okay. But there's going to be a lot of stuff, many, many things from which to choose. And you know as a fact that DCBService.com is going to have them for much, much less than you're going to get them anywhere else. So go there, take a look around if you're not already a subscriber, and just bask in the savings. DCBService.com. They're the best. So now that that's over with, we get into the nitty-gritty. Long-time listeners know Matthew has been here once before or twice? Yes. once before. Yep. Once? Just the once, but yeah. Chris, Just once. this is his first we time. find a way to finally make it. Right. And Chris, if you know that Jason just spontaneously bursts into song, it's, it happens. I would hope he knows. I, I mean, I'm sure he doesn't listen to every episode, but he, he must have heard me <laughs> burst into song at least once or twice over the years. It, it's very enjoyable. <clears throat> Yeah. Enjoyable. All right. So let's go into this from the publisher perspective. How is it recent events, uh, what with the COVID and all the other stuff, how has that impacted AdHouse? Well, it's, it's been an interesting ride for sure. We, um, our timing was such that I think, any way that Cancor could have gotten delayed, it was. Mm. Um, yeah. Going back to Chinese New Year, you know, I don't know how much you know about publishing, but, you know, you get a better price over in Asia, um, Singapore, Hong Kong, all over. And so for full-color work, we typically go over there. 
and you want to try and get as much work done before Chinese New Year as possible. And so we were on that track, and then Chinese New Year hit, and we didn't get our proofs yet. And then the COVID thing hit. And so the government gave them an extra week, and then they, you know, rightfully so, they regulated the amount of people coming across the border, and then you know became the the shipping fiasco, but you know, it, all the, all these problems eventually made it here. So it's not like if we had gotten the product sooner, we could have done anything with it. We probably still would have had a, you know diamonds doors closed. So yeah, it's just it's been a, a long road. Um, we still had to pay our printing bill, <laughs> and we still haven't been paid by diamond yet. So <laughs> fun oh, time. Boy. <laughs> I think one of the things that yeah, actually... But no, I mean, it's like, the, the, yeah, the fact that, you know, I think I posted, what, um, yesterday, um, we finally got to ship Cancor to Diamond. I mean, that's one of the happiest days I've had recently. You know? Awesome. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I was going to say, one of the things that does work in your favor, being a relatively small boutique publisher, is that you don't have 10 or 15 titles floating in limbo now. I mean, I don't know how many you have oh, exactly. on, on the yeah. list, but there, it's not yeah. like a huge yeah, I mean, amount of... You know, a, yeah, a busy year for us is like five to seven items. So, um, yeah, we, we you're right. We don't have a lot, so there's not a lot of balls to juggle. It's just, you know, Cancor is so damn beautiful. You want to get it out there as soon as possible. Mm, right, and yeah. The fact that it just has to, you know, sit in my warehouse for about a month. So, But that's all behind us, you know. Blue skies ahead. <laughs> it's all going to be great. I expect to see two names on the Eisners for next year, Matthews and yours for the, as the publisher. I, I'm, I yeah. just I have a feeling that it's just going to it's going to take root and just explode. It, it has yeah. to. I mean, just yeah, look I, at. I, it. I don't want to jinx it, but yeah, I think you're right. I think it's one of those special books that people should take notice of, and hopefully they do. You know? Right, mm-hmm. and it's been in the works. Let's swing it over to Matthew a little bit. It's been in the works for a long time. Yeah, I've been working on this, well, this particular series since 2015 and doing Canker Stories since 2012. So, yeah, this has been going on for eight years now. Yeah, it was amazing seeing that first one. Um, I think we were friends before I saw your work, or at least, so. like, I've encountered you online in some capacity before I really saw the Canker work, but once... I saw it. I was like, it was a revelation. It's like, this is my dude. I I love this stuff. And then we got another issue, uh, whatever, a year or so later, whatever. But it just kept compounding. And it's like, now, uh, why can't you do a monthly? Well, I, <laughs> I've got a, I, I've got a, uh, some ideas for a Patreon um, with some weekly Kankor updates. So, um that's I don't know about a monthly, but there will be Kankor material on a semi-regular basis. Cool. And um, your style, I guess uh, you alluded to it. Your style is not exactly one that lends itself to expediency. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I when I was doing the the newer pages for this book, I I tried to. Um, pare things down a little bit and 
do some pages that had more panels but less detail just to to clarify some of the storytelling and i've really found ways of inking uh my work uh, qu- quicker um and still maintaining my style so hopefully uh with, with what i've got planned I've simplified it to the point where it's still recognizable as my own, but it I can get it done faster as opposed to sitting there. Plus, my eyes are going. <laughs> I, I, I've had major problems with my eyes in the last year, so I, oh. I can't do that detail anymore. Um, it's just too much. So um, uh, you'll, you'll see a simplified version, but I think people will be happy with it. Cool. So, Matthew, uh, I mean, we know about Kanker, obviously, but for our listeners who might not, why don't you give them a little a little pitch? And once you do that, I have to ask for a little follow up because I noticed that, uh, you know, Chris, I assume you write the um, the little blurbs on the blog on AdHouse. And I see in italics at the bottom of the Kanker pitch, Michael DeForge meets Frank Quitely. And uh, that uh, that's I, I, that caught my attention because I think of Matthew as like a singular artistic voice because I know him personally. But then I was trying to think on it. I think, oh, that that's interesting. So I'd love to hear uh, how you came up with that. But first, uh, uh, Matt, why don't you just uh, tell the kind folks at home that don't know about the awesomeness of Kanker what uh, what they're going to get their hands on? Well, uh, it's ostensibly a superhero book um there are characters who look like superheroes they got the gloves and the boots and the body suits and all that stuff but um you know that was really a decision i made just because it's a simple form to render and i felt like i could uh tell stories um with a certain amount of visual excitement but also work in a lot of personal stuff within there as well. So the book itself uh, that that's coming out from ad house is partially autobiographical with these full color fantasy sequences involving these super humanoids, I guess you'd call them. And uh, really the, the impetus for all this was to just make something and to, I, I, I just, I'd spent years and years um, looking at blogs uh, when you know Blogspot was a huge thing. Um, I had a job where I could spend a lot of time each day just poring over people's blogs, and I was seeing all these Silver Age reprints that people were posting, uh, weird Indonesian comic books and weird Japanese toys, and just filling my head with this stuff day after day after day, and it all just gelled and became Kankor. Uh, I, I just, I, I can't really describe the process of creating it because it just happened. It, it, there was no real rhyme or reason. I didn't sit down with a sketchbook and a notepad and map out what I wanted to do with this story. It was just start with page one, see what happens on page two. And if I get stuck, then I'm going to work on page 20 and I'll have it meet in the middle somehow. And, um, so it's, um, I, I don't know, Chris, I mean, you and I talked about how to describe this book, what exactly it was. And I know it's, it's somewhat difficult to describe. Um, we had debated if it's a horror book, if it's science fiction, 
Uh, I don't even think we put autobiographical on the the description on the back because I almost feel like that would confuse people. <laughs> if, they, if they look at the book, they're like, they look at the cover, like, how could this be autobiographical? You got a robot right, right. who's being pulled apart. And, yeah, I don't know. But, but, but it's also, I feel like the way you tell the story, I feel like the story could be any one of us almost, if that makes sense. There, there's like a, a badge of nerdum that, you know, you put so many anecdotes and details into the book that I feel like any true comic book fan is going to relate to it. Does that make sense? Sure. Do you feel that way, Matt? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. I think I've gotten that response uh, from people for sure, which is gratifying. Um, yeah. Be- because I, as I, you know you're in your twenties and you're single and you're miserable and you're just ruminating about your life and all these horrible decisions that you've made. And you think you're the only person in the world who's dealt with this. And then you start to share these stories and everybody else is like, yeah, I went through the exact same thing. So, uh, yeah, I would agree with that. One of the things about the book that speaks to me, in addition to the body horror and the, the, uh, the fluidity of the, the, characters themselves like you have body parts moving and shifting all over the place and it looks it just looks gorgeous but the thing that i picked up on was there's an honesty to it if that makes any sense at all there's there's a a veracity to the narrative well i i i thought going in this guy's just not doing this to draw cool creatures well that may be part of it but when it started to take that autobiographical slant I was like, you really have something here. It just—I think the two aspects ming or commingle really well, but they really shouldn't. Uh, again, it, this is another dead end because it's so hard to put words to this. But I guess the, the yeah. And the, I mean, can, can you think of? I mean, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but can you think of any other book that does this? I can't, not offhand, no. But, you know. Yeah. Um, it would have well, to be a manga, I would think. Uh, yeah, that's probably right. Yeah, I know that there are you know there are books out there. I, I've had people read the book and tell me um, it reminded them of Flex Mentallo. Sure. And um, you know that wasn't a deliberate choice, but I do really enjoy that book. And I went back and and reread it uh, after having heard that the first time and terrified that I had ripped it off because you know that happens yeah. a lot where you're you know just absent-mindedly you're thinking of something and you just use somebody else's idea and I think there's there are enough differences there it also helped shape the end of the book because I didn't want to you know go in a, a direction that was obviously similar to to what Morrison and quietly had done there um, I did find um, as I was working on on issues three and four, uh, Josh Bayer was posting images from the book that he's been working on, uh, Theft Two. Uh, what's the full title of that, Vince? It's tomorrow. Um, tomorrow, yeah. Uh, tomorrow never. Shit, he's gonna kill me. Yeah, I know. Well, I so I was reading what he was doing. 
And that story is about a guy in his 20s wandering the city, getting drunk, miserable because he wants to be an artist and he can't uh, work it out. And, um, you know, it's just his life is just a mess. And um, he was Josh is a master at at creating that kind of visual chaos that represents that those emotions. And um, I, I was crushed when I saw he was working on this book. Cause I was like, Oh my God, he's nailing everything that I want to be doing with this. Josh is just, it's raw there on the page. And I'm sitting here noodling all my wires and shit. And I'm like, God, that guy, you know, why am I doing this? He he's his, there's so much immediacy in what he's doing. And I apologized to him because I told him, like, I can't read your book. It's going to just destroy me because I know that you will have done a better job of conveying this time in your life than I ever could or wanted to in my own book. Um, but I know that his that book deals with some similar themes from what I've seen of, of what he's done with it, especially when he works in the Black Star, the Frankenstein stuff um, and ROM and all of that. I think that... Uh, he and I are mining similar territory. Right. I think you're doing yourself a disservice when, when you say he, his is a, a stronger uh, voice than yours. I don't think it's stronger. I just think it's different. I mean, I, I, you know I love Josh, but yeah. your two uh, approaches side by side, I'd be hard-pressed to pick the better one because I don't think there is a better one in this instance. I think they're both great. Um, just you're just taking different avenues to get to the to the end point. That's that's awesome. Well, and I and I'll I'll I will I know I will read the book at some point because the first volume, Theft, the original, is one of my favorite graphic novels of the last ten years. It's amazing, one of the most affecting things that I've read in, in a long, long time. So, um, you know, I, I can't not read that book, but just for right now, I have to avoid it yeah it's tomorrow forever by the way yeah, okay and okay. uh josh is so freaking humble too it, it's mm -hmm. unbelievable you could just sit down with him and talk and it's just like you're like 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 you and chris like both of you guys share a lot of loves the same as as we do mm -hmm. and uh josh is the same way like he's just a he's just a dude and you could just yeah. enjoy his company and he'll talk about art and he'll he'll talk about music and he's just so he doesn't realize how good he is Mm -hmm. and that's that's, a, that's a little scary <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you know uh, when when you I, I keep i know i don't want to go back backwards but um when, because the autobiographical tag came up and and i'm thinking about as as vince said you know when it when that entered the picture and and for me it kind of as as much as i was enjoying canker before that and, and i was no doubt that that, that kind of elevated it a bit but but as as um as chris is talking about it all i all i think about when i because for whatever reason for whatever reason but whenever i think of someone trying to do something autobiographical in comics that kind of the the foundation is there but just the the take or or the way the story is presented isn't necessarily note for note this is really what happened in my life i i think of I think of Mage. Mm, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 That's, yeah, that's very accurate. Because obviously he doesn't walk around with a glowing bat, and he doesn't know a magician in real life, but he has said, Matt has said that, you know, the, these events, the people, I, Bob Shrek is in 
the sequel, it, 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 his sister-in-law is is one of the witches. So I mean, he's there are aspects of his life that that he's incorporated into the characters and the story to get from A to B and and with his children. But um, but yeah, it obviously isn't a day by day retelling of of Matt Wagner's life. Well, don't please <laughs> please don't hate me for saying this. I've never read Mage. This is not the first time you said Jeebus. this to me, and, and I would so have sorry. thought that you know after the that after the years we've known each other that that may have been. Uh, I don't like a whole lot of comics in general, but I. I and you've you been know. listening to Eleven O'clock Comics. Thanks everyone for. <laughs> He's so good at self promotion, isn't he? Uh, it's unbelievable. I just want to get back to the Bayer comparison just for a little bit. Of course you do. Uh, but I think. Uh, Josh is an artist's artist, right? Yeah. It takes a discerning eye to decode what he's doing that may not appeal to a, a, a broad swath of, of buyers. I think you got it in the pocket where you are a very – it takes a discerning eye to to lock onto your stuff too. But I think there's more potential for spillover into, into the, the big two audience because – your stuff's very pleasing to the eye, whereas Josh, it's it's a little grimy. It's 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 gritty, and it's not going to click with the you know those readers. Where I think your stuff, the wheels are greased for that to to just cross over. Well, I told Josh on Instagram. I said he he draws the way William S. Burroughs writes. Yes, and I I'm more Kirk Vonnegut. Um, <laughs> I, I think that you know that that would be the, the way i would and and i love both of them so i i'm i'm fine with that differential between the two of us for sure some of the detail in your panels i think you're more pinch on than vonnegut but that's okay <laughs> oh see i can't read pinch on i've never been able to <laughs> I've, I've tried reading gravity's rainbow and uh, i just i couldn't couldn't get into it oh it's a magnificent um, book yeah i read it three so times dense. yeah okay yeah uh and i picked different things out of it each read so yeah, I'll try it. I'll try it. It's a wonderful book. Um, so let's get back to Chris. I, I'm always envious of Chris because he seems to be, at least at the conventions, he seems to be at the right place at the right time to get all the books that I want uh, before I even get there. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? You collect fanzines <laughs> like I do. Mm. And oh, okay. I, I can't. It must have been at least the last two, three shows where we've we've I, we've been in the same uh, space where you'd be like, "Oh, look what I just got!" I'm like, "God damn it, Chris! <laughs> where did you find that?" <laughs> it's like, ah, oh. I love your box too. Yeah, I think I, 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 yeah. Think, I feel like you know, I, there's like probably I've got ten things on ten real things on my want list, and then that's it. So I think I'm a I'm close to the end of the run of, you know, collecting all that stuff, you know? Yeah. But you, you found something like, at like Jason's, right? Us, like all of us, I've got more than enough stuff to read. True. <laughs> but that doesn't stop us from buying new no, stuff. No, can't stop, yeah. won't stop. Yeah, it, know, it's hard yeah. not to walk away from Jason's booth without buying a bunch of stuff. Oh, yeah. He, yeah. he knows my weaknesses, too. Yep. And he's very good at he's a, it. He's a kind dealer. Yes. Yep, he's a kind yeah. dealer. I'll be thumbing through boxes, and last time we were there, he was plopping down copies of Garo. And I was like, how do I say no? <laughs> and just so our <laughs> listeners aren't confused, they're, they're talking about a different Jason. Yes. Oh, definitely. Yes, yes, yes. Hamlin. We'll call him Hamlin. Yes, Jason Hamlin. He's a great, great dealer. 
Yes. Uh, but anyway, so what is the, uh, I mean, what's the anticipation for this Cancor Volume 1? Um, once it goes to Diamond, like, sales were robust, I hope? Yeah, you know, um, I was very happy with the sales. Just, you know, bigger picture-wise, I feel like, at least for us, for Ad House, the direct market has just been slowly taking a, you know, dive where every book that we put out, a little less orders, a little less orders, a little less orders. And then with Cancor, we finally, you know, went back up the curve. So I was real happy about that. Um, and it, I think Matt's created a, a rabid fan base. So if people haven't already gotten a copy, you know, through the back channels, I think they're, they're definitely waiting and, you know, can't wait for them to show up in the local comic shop or Amazon or, you know, wherever. Yeah, I think word of mouth is going to be also very good to this book. Once well, people think, start know, seeing it. Cover, yeah, when, you know, when the cover, you know, hits the stacks, it's like, what is that? And then they pick it up and then they feel the cover. <laughs> yep. Has anyone felt the cover yet? I didn't get mine yet. It, no, mine's coming okay. through Diamond. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, one one of the things that, you know, we went above and beyond with, we wanted a special paper for the cover. And, um, you know, we had to get it shipped directly to the printer, and that's what happened. And, um, no, I love the way it turned out. It's fantastic. Oh, what kind of so paper did you, you use? Know, you, talk about, you talk about his the, the art being pleasing to the eye. Well, the tactile quality will come in with this collection, too, when oh, people great. touch the book. That's awesome. Nice. And what kind of paper was it? Oh, of course you're going to ask me that. Um, my, my takeaway was, I think we put it, it's in the Indicia, right, Matt? I believe so, which I don't have in front of me. Yeah. Um, is, is it a clay oh, coat? Either, but I'm just saying, we were we were proud enough to put it in the Indicia and whatever font we used and all those details. So, <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll find But no, the to- takeaway was that we wanted it to feel wet. And there was really only one type of paper out there that would do that, and that's the one we went with. Oh, it sounds did you great. Say, did you say it? I, yeah, I can't. Uh, starts with an M. I can't remember the name of the. I want to say yeah. it's called yeah, Magic right. Touch, but that's a Kiss song. So and not, and not a very good one either. <laughs> no, it's not. It's a great album. Uh, yeah, song. <laughs> yeah, I'm so torn on those guys. Like like yourself, I grew up my walls plastered with kiss posters. Over the years though, I mean I, I was a big defender of uh Dynasty and, and I stuck with them through Unmasked and the even the crappy stuff in in the nineties. But something about Gene, I cannot listen to yeah. him anymore. Mm-hmm. Have you seen what he's been posting on Twitter though? His sketches? <laughs> no. I don't oh, no, I don't God. follow him. He's gone back to he's been posting images from his old fanzines and then he's doing oh, nice. sketches of samurais and stuff and really? posting them on Twitter. Oh, yeah, man, it's, follow it's, him. it's amazing. Oh man, don't make me follow Gene. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll just retweet or or send you directly the the stuff. I I share them with I'm going to reveal something here. I have a secret um uh, Kiss DM chat with Michelle Fife and Chuck Forsman. <laughs> so we share stuff like that with each other, anything Kiss related. Oh boy. I saw them in 1980, Madison Square Garden, at the beginning of the Dynasty Tour. Oh, no, and, that would have been the end because I saw them in 79, and that Peter was, was it Eric Carr or Peter? 
No, it was. Oh no, it was Eric when I saw them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He joined. Yeah, he he was there for uh, the end of the Dynasty tour. And I'll never forget it. I was what Dynasty came out in seventy uh, nine, right? Mm-hmm. So I was uh, fourteen. Yeah. And they came up out of the floor. And I was like blown away. And this guy, my mother had to take me, obviously, because it's New York City. And, you know, I was 14. Um, this guy next to my mother passed a joint to her. <laughs> and my mom's like, oh, no, thank you. You know, all prim and proper. But then she was in her 50s by that point. So she had to take her medication. So she, she opens up a little thing, pops a pill. And the guy's like, you got any more of those? And he didn't even know what it was. But I said, I said, that's part of the reason why I absolutely adore New York city. Because like a lot of my childhood was, was can't happen there. But yeah, I, I just, I, I love them, but God, part of me. No, I, what they're doing in now, or not, not now, what they've been doing the past 20 years with this current lineup is abhorrent to me, but I understand it. Um, I mean, to me, we, we reached a point in the early aughts where nostalgia died and it's just like everything you ever wanted or liked, you're just going to have all of it all the time. Right. And kiss is the perfect example of that. Like we're never going to stop. You're always going to have us. And it was a big deal when they reunited because you didn't have them, at least that version of them, for 15 years. And then they, of course, had to run it into the fucking ground. But I'm sorry to distract. That was that's no, it's okay. Fault. It's it's hey, it's a valid topic. <laughs> favorite favorite yeah. album before we part ways with Kiss. Well, okay. Do you have, uh, can I choose a live album? Of course. Well, how about the solo albums? Because the best thing anybody in that band has ever done is uh, Ace's solo album. I have to agree with that. Okay. And then I would say a live one. Mm, over Destroyer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Destroyer's way down on my list. I, I like Love Gun more than Destroyer. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I actually like um, uh, Destroyer would be my number one. The Elder would be my number two. Mm. Yeah. Just because it's so wow. fucked up and weird. Yeah. Like they geez. they didn't know what they were. I mean, they were just trying. Like Lou Reed on a Kiss album? What? Get- well, in that song, Mr. Blackwell, God, we were getting really bad. Um, <laughs> Mr. Blackwell <laughs> is essentially, uh, you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. Yeah. So yep. there you go. Yeah. Okay. So left field. But you know, I like the left field stuff. That's why I like your stuff. <laughs> Thank huh. you. True to life. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I'm curious how you two hooked up, like how you ended up making it happen uh, at at uh, at house. Do you want to tell him that? Oh, <laughs> it happened. Why, to don't, why don't you tell him? Because it's embarrassing for me the my behavior. Um, oh shit! Well, here's just, the other thing. I, I always feel a little stupid about stuff. You know, there's always like a ten to fifteen percent chance that I'm getting something wrong. So, with that disclaimer said. <laughs> Um, I mean, we we were going to conventions together. We'd see each other. We'd talk at shows. And then I forget how it ever came up. But you said, yeah, I've got this project I'm working on. I'd like to do, I'd like to do a collection. And, but also, I've got another collection at another publisher. But, you know, and so that just confused me. And... 
then eventually, I mean, where it really happened was Heroes Con. And the only reason I remember is because Ed Pisker took a photo of us shaking hands. Yeah. And, you know, saying that, that, okay, I got it. I got it on film. Now we know. But that was like, I feel like two years ago. <laughs> it was, yeah. Well, I had talked to you at TCAF, and I had been right. um, I'd been talking to Eric Reynolds at Fanagraphics. He, I'd been introduced to him through a friend of mine, and um, I'd sent him some stuff. And at the time, they were doing the Fanagraphics Underground line, uh, which I found out later was actually Gary Groth's thing. Um, Eric didn't really have anything to do with that. And uh, something about it didn't feel right because I, I didn't feel like they were not that, not that it was ever in, in any way set in stone that that was going to happen. But I know that those were sort of bo- boutique books where they were only printing 500 of them as very limited exposure and I, I I wanted something that would have a higher profile, but I also didn't, you know, I, I felt like, oh, do, am I worthy of a higher profile? You know, am I worthy of a really nice looking book? Not that Fantagraphics doesn't put out beautiful looking books, but um, I, I felt like, you know, the, the reputation that Ad House has for the the design and the 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 way all the books look that Chris has put out is is well deserved, and um, you know I, I don't have to tell you guys, but Aphrodisiac is one of the most beautiful books, comic books that I've ever seen in terms of um, just the concept behind it. And I don't know so much of that as Jim, but um, I looked at that book and I'm like, am I ever going to hit that height? You know, can I can I put something out that's that good? That's always how I've been with my art. Like I always have these barometers where I feel like, well, is it as good as this? No. Well, then why bother? So I was really hesitant to talk to Chris about it because I just felt like, well, he put out Aphrodisiac. Why would he want to put out my book? You know, that that was the thought process. And so I was very timid talking to Chris about it because I just was like. I don't want to make assumptions that he would even be interested in, in doing this. So I started telling him about to having talked to Eric Reynolds and I'd said this to, to Chris a couple of weeks ago. It's like, if you like a girl and you want to ask her out and you're nervous to talk to her, the way you talk to her is to ask her about one of her friends. Like that's what I was doing with Chris. Like, what do you think about fanographics? What do you think about this FU line they're doing? And, in reality, I'm trying to get him interested in the book, but that was my passive-aggressive way of doing mm-hmm. it. So. I love it. And the rest <laughs> is history. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it worked out. It feels right. I mean, you know, D- David kind of very quickly, uh, I don't know if you all heard under his breath, said, like, it happened at Heroes Con when, when I asked the question. But, I mean, I think we all agree that it just feels right because we've we've known you both for so long and I think that there's definitely a spiritual simpatico to the aesthetic of the work that you've been doing, Matt, with the brilliant stuff that you know Chris has published over the years. Uh, I mean, you, you know, I don't, you know, you know, I worship at the altar of Aphrodisiac. It was my book of the decade. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, man. So I mean, it, it just feels right. You know, it definitely feels like uh, chocolate and peanut butter to me. Um, so I completely um, agree. I think Cancor definitely belongs in the Ad House Library. For sure. I think it, you know, it's up there with all the great books we published, and I'm really happy about it. That's great to hear. That's awesome. Cannot wait. 
But the question is, uh, <laughs> I mean, I think SPX was canceled officially. And so I guess the question is, when do you think, I mean, if you had to guess, Chris, because I'm sure you're more on the uh, finger on the pulse of cons than even we are. Uh, if you had to guess when we're all doing cons again, what would you think? 2021? Is that sort of the, the baseline now? I feel like it. Yeah. Um, you know, right now I got a table at uh, Thought Bubble over in, in UK. Leeds, yeah. And uh, yeah, in Leeds, um, I've never been. I've always wanted to go, and so I applied and I got in. And right now they they say they're still doing it, but you know, I was just talking to my wife earlier. I like you know, we have to figure out at some point if we're still doing it. You know, if we feel safe making that trip. But to my knowledge, I didn't know about New York Comic Con, so you guys knew that. I knew Thought Bubble, but those really are the only two shows I know of in 2020. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's tough climate. It's weird, I right? Get it. I, I really it's, think yeah. normal's gone. That, uh, do you know? Yeah, you really? I think so, yeah. But but let's unpack that. Like, like okay, I understand your, your reticence. Long? Right, I understand your reticence of saying, oh, if New York is on in November, I'm not sure I want to go. Okay, I get that. But are you you really telling me that you're you're never going to go to you never want to go to Heroes or C two E two or New York again? Well, we'll never be able to have the experience in the same fashion we've been used to. That those days are gone. I mean, even if so, uh, so you think there'll never be a time where people gr- mass gather at convention centers without wearing well, no, masks. To, to say never is because I, I it's pretty foolish. Be, but I think unless the virus has a major second wave that overwhelms the hospitals this time next year. The statement you just made will seem as crazy as it would have seemed six months ago saying we'd all be wearing masks and staying at home. Well, I am uh, noted for my crazy comments, so you never know. Yeah. Yeah. I do know, you know, I've had conversations with uh, other artists, uh, especially, you know, when COVID first started, um, some of the, the conversation was around. Uh, how does this affect the Wednesday Warrior crowd, the people who are so locked into the system of getting comics on a regular basis? And then, of course, Diamond shuts down, and, and it throws this wrench into what people have been doing for decades. And I think the the automatic assumption is like, oh, you know, this is going to completely throw things off forever. And I, I certainly felt like that for a while. But I do think that the comfort of having these cons every year you know in june you're going to go to heroes you know that in either late february or march you're going to go to c2e2 like once that starts rolling again i think people want to get back into their routine because it makes them feel comfortable right the familiars is wonderful but um Mm -hmm. i mean well we just have to play it by ear i'm all for it i would love to get back to the way things were but um it's it's uh, it's an unknown, so we'll just yeah. have to see. Yeah. So, in addition to the stuff you guys uh, have produced, what are you um, right now? What's really floating your boat in in comics? Chris could answer that better than I can, for sure. <laughs> oh come on! Well, as far as new stuff, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you, you okay? Well, no, so, so Jason saying, Hamlin honestly, and Chris. It's like all- yeah, that's what I was going to say. Honestly, I mean, I think we're all in the vintage frame of mind, right? Well, yeah, I just think that, you know, you guys were pulling out books and talking about artists when we were at Jason Hamlin's house that I had never even heard of, I knew nothing about. So, 
you know, I, I think that you're much more in tune with what's happening than I am. Well, I don't know if I'm in tune so much as just trying to find enjoyment out of places I haven't been yet. So one of the things I just purchased was the complete run of Crossfire. Oh, um, oh, oh. comics back in the day. Mark Evanier and Dan, Dan Spiegel. Spiegel. Yeah, it's I, a great run. I love me some Dan Spiegel. Yes. yes. Yep. And for some reason, I've just never read Crossfire. So I got the whole run, and I'm going through in like chunks of you know six issues here, six issues there. I've been enjoying that. But new stuff? Yeah, I mean... Oh, I, I finally got um, that Helter Skelter manga. Have you all read that? No. No. I don't know who the creator is, but it's a book that um, Katie Skelly has been championing forever. And every you know bookstore I go into that has a manga section, I'll look to see if I can find it. I can never find it. So I was in my local comic shop, Velocity Comics, and I told Patrick, I was like, you know what, can you order this? He looked it up. He's like, yeah, it's by vertical. We can have it here next week. I was like, go ahead and order me a copy. <laughs> so I've got that. That's a new-ish book, but I think it came out like three or four years ago. Um, but other stuff, I mean, I can't think. I mean, you know, Octobriana. <laughs> yeah. I have that hardcover. Yeah. That's a good book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, have you seen the original, I talking, right? I was talking about the fluorescent one. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, Jim's awesome. But have you seen the original, Octobriana? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I know what the kayfabe effect is. So <laughs> when Jim, like, showed me that book, I was like, I better fucking get a copy before it's $300, yep. you know? And that's what happened. So, yeah, I, but then, you know, he does his video about the book, and he has the hardcover. And I was like, way to kill me, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> I bought that yeah, like three years ago, uh, the original, yeah. and I'm so glad I did. Yeah. Because now, forget it. Yeah. Right. Yep. Those guys are something. Yep. The the um, I I I believe my very first interaction um with a Dan Spiegel drawn comic book was the Greystoke Legend of Tarzan. Marvel adaptation, the oversized version. Wow. I did, I, yeah, I did not even know about that one. I didn't. Uh, I, I can't recall the writer who adapted the movie, but but that was it. Was it was Dan Spiegel and I, I? I. So when you say oversized, are you talking Treasury? It wasn't. No, it was. Um, because it, it was or about the same. The uh, no, no, it was. I don't shoot. It wasn't. I feel like it was somewhere between because Blade Runner also had the adaptation because they cut that into two issues for 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 the comics. Um, okay, I want to say it may have been somewhere between the Marvel graphic novel and the the, the old Marvel DC Treasuries. I I, I think it's okay. between. It was more like a magazine. It was stapled, but it was it was it was a thick, oversized comic book. You know, getting back to fanzines and stuff, I think it's Graphic Story World or Graphic Story Monthly. They had a good run of like 10 issues where they were interviewing these people I never knew and was just fascinated. You know, I mean, professionals. And I never knew of them, but then I just, I wanted to know more about them after their interview. And he did a really good interview with Dan Spiegel in there. And 
I mean, I learned Dan's history of, you know, he started in cowboy comics. I think it was, wasn't Roy Rogers, but it was another famous cowboy had his own comic strip and he actually worked for the cowboy. (laughs) Do you know who I'm talking about? (laughs) Yeah. Um, not Ricochet. Um, what was it? Uh, was it Casey Ruggles? One of those strips, yeah. But that's the problem yeah. with buying old fanzines because you'll read an article by someone you know you don't have much experience with, and you see the images and they list the books, and then it results in a hunt. You may have yeah, picked up yeah. the fanzine for like you know five ten bucks, but then you're spending a couple hundred bucks on top of it tracking down all these books that they're talking about. And <laughs> I have a love hate relationship with that, but because um, I can't yeah. say no if I see something in a fanzine that I haven't encountered, I want it like tomorrow it's it's a problem but my first um yeah my first spiegel was uh nemesis the backup in brave and bold oh, right. that, that's what yes I was yeah. Up. yeah 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 and i became I, it wasn't um it was brave and bold where i first came aware of nemesis and and yes spiegel was drawing that as well because my those were brave and bold and world's finest were, were were part of the bundles of books my aunt would give me and and that was so i wasn't reading it when Obviously, Brave and the Bull was coming out at the time, but as I went back and I recognized artists, um, but yeah, yeah, I, I think of it's. I mean, I obviously think of Spiegel when Crossfire is mentioned, but but Nemesis is right up there when it comes to you know creators, artists you associate with specific characters. Um, yeah, it, it was very easy for me, very easy for me to associate Spiegel and Nemesis, right. Who who was doing the Batman? Was that Bray Fogel at the time? No, that would have been Aparo. Was it really? I, see, I didn't think he was on that late. I mean, I love me Aparo, and I just he was on it towards the end because he he was um yeah. he was he was on it because he did that Karate Kid, Brave and the Bold issue, but but he was he was the artist on the original artist for Batman and the Outsider, so it was just a transition for him from one Bat team up title to another. Um, gotcha. But yeah, I mean, there there are probably some some um, Dick Dillon issues here and there. But for the most most of the Brave and the Bold issues that I've read um, were drawn by Jim, and and yeah, he was definitely on it towards the end. Yeah, Spiegel's one of those guys that just does not get enough love, and I, I yeah. I've, I've never understood it because when I look at his drawings of Rainbow, I was like, man, this guy's in a one of the top tiers. I, I just love the way mm-hmm. I love his line. He's got the line of a fashion illustrator and it's just so loose and beautiful. And uh, like yourself, I came upon uh, crossfire back in the day and I, I just, he just blew me away. Yeah. That needs to be collected in a nice thick ass hardcover. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. I saw like somebody on Facebook just posted the, uh, I guess somebody collected DNA agents. You know, Spiegel didn't do the art, but Evanier did write both. Yeah. And so I guess they're, I don't know who did it, but it was just, you know, a nice hardcover collection. Well, there's a, hmm. uh, it's not um, the original DN Agents. Uh, Image has a softcover collection of the new DN Agents, which uh, Will Minio did the art for that. Right. Yeah. Um, the, uh, it was okay, so maybe it was a magazine size. It was it was the Marvel Comics Super Special number twenty nine is when that Tarzan story. Um, <laughs> and because I yeah, you, you got me you got me looking for it now. But that and it was it, they, they cut 
that magazine into two issues to make a, a two part limited series. Uh, so you can get that wow. off the spinner rack, but and that's, and it was well, also a lot of Tarzan, by, man. It yeah. is, it is, <laughs> and it was it was written by uh, it was written by Mark Avenue. Oh, there you go. Now I sort of have to check it out, I guess. Yep. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we did we leave any bases uncovered here? In terms of, let's get it back to Cancor so everybody can know what to run out yeah, and get. Yeah, I was going to say, we talked about Kiss, we talked about Dan Siegel. <laughs> it's what happens here. It's all, it's all part of it. So it's at Diamond, <laughs> and it's going to start. Well, it, it's getting there. It'll be there within the week. Yes. Okay. Awesome. Now, here's a little tidbit. Like, when you have a new release, you have to ship it to all the warehouses. After that first shipment, then you just ship to one warehouse. So I actually have to go in and break down cases to the right quantity. And then essentially the books get shipped to New York. Um, what is it? Tennessee. Yeah. Two, two in Tennessee, I think. So, um, yeah, anyway. Is, and is that uh, business as usual or has your approach to distribution changed in the, the wake of, the new status quo at, at diamond. No, yeah, that, that that's a business as usual. Whenever, um, a new release happens, they want it shipped, you know, to three different locations just because that's the way their warehouse works. Right. You know, as new product comes in and then once that is depleted, then everything is fulfilled as back orders from, I keep saying Tennessee, but it's olive branch, whatever that one is. Right. But, uh, well, as long as yeah, it, no. well, it gets there, that's what we want. We want to get this book in the hands yes. of people. Yes. Yeah. For you, not for Matthew. We couldn't care less about him. <laughs> I, yeah. It took me so long to get it done anyway. I, I, every delay, I'm like, yeah, that's fine. It took, me <laughs> it took me this long to make it. I, I don't care. It'll get out there. <laughs> I saw the, the uh, one of your Instagram uh, photos with the boxes all stacked up. That must have been. Oh a, yeah. That that probably was a very happy day. Definitely so what was the print run here? Seventy five thousand, eighty thousand. What are we what are we talking? Mm-hmm. We did uh, fifteen hundred because you know the the times being what they are. I I, I still err on caution just a bit. Um, so diamonds initial orders were about a third of the print run. So nice. we're good for a little while. Since we have you as as a as a publisher friend on that, I've always been curious. Like with a with a book where you have to decide on the initial print run, um, what's the relative margin hit for uh, like having to go back to print for a second run versus if you just did a, a first order? I mean, obviously, I know the downside of over ordering the first run and just having a whole inventory, but like you know, if if it's hot, like say like Duncan Duncan was, and you have to kind of go back to press quickly. Um, you know, had you gotten the number right in the first place, what's, is it a big Delta in, in profit for you or is it just marginal? It's, it's fairly substantial. It, you have to have that feeling of whether it's going to be a book that needs to be around for a long time mm-hmm. or whether it can go out of print and become kind of a legend or something. But, um, no, when I think, uh, young Francis, you know, it was, it was a heavy hitter when it first came out. And as soon as it came out, we had to go back to press. And like you said, Duncan, it was the same way. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, it's be- because you're, you're, you're not, obviously, you know, the more you print, the cheaper they are. 
Yeah. And if you just done those extra thousands. But the downside is you got to store them, right? And you got to have the inventory. Right. And right. Pay exactly. And you just don't know. If we knew, we'd all be millionaires, right? right. And we're not. So we, we guess. We, you know, we look at like type books and, you know, we, we try and hope for the best. Yeah. And then like, because I think I pretty much own almost everything you've ever done. Uh, I'm always curious, like why certain things stay in print that have been around for a while. And some don't like, for example, you know, aphrodisiacs still in print. Thank the gods. Uh, like, like Jeremiah, you know, um, uh, wood, you know, things like that are all still in print. Like I can get them. Whereas, Things like Mesmo Delivery or uh, American Barbarian, um, they're out of print. So, like, is that just simply a function of, you know, orders trickle down to a point where it's just not worth reordering, economically speaking? Or in some cases, do you intentionally let it go out of print because the creator just doesn't want extra inventory out there? It, um, it It's a case-by-case basis. Okay. Um, for instance, with Mesmo... We actually didn't publish that. We just helped Raphael distribute that first printing. Oh, okay. That first okay. Printing. So okay. we helped him distribute that. And then once he ran out, you know, I guess Dark Horse had, you know, swooped in to, you know, say, we'd like to print it now. And I think their printing's gone out of print now, correct? I don't know. I got it from you. So. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think their, um, their version has gone out, of, mm. gone out of print as well. But um, it, so it's a case by case, you know. With with Ad House, there's a few books that I consider like the pillars of our imprint. Those are skyscrapers, aphrodisiac. Maybe we only have two pillars right now, and Cancor. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about like the freak but, um, now? Now, like you know, congratulations on the uh, on the Eisner nom, obviously today. Um, like, will yeah, that yeah. will that boost sales? Like, or is it is it? I hope, so. yeah, I really hope mm-hmm. so. Um, it, it's been good. You know, sales on the freak have been good. But here's the weird thing: Did you see the category it was in? Uh, I did offhand. I don't like. I just read all the lists and saw it on there. And I'm like, oh, awesome! But I, I remind me, I don't. Yeah. So this is what floored me. It was like, what I think it was called one shot. Yeah. Oh, and, okay. I didn't notice that. Yeah. And so it's 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 the freak against. I mean, you know, four or five other things. One of which is a Beale's book. Right? Mm-hmm. No, I think her book is on there. It's like a companion I... piece to that. It confused me because oh, is it... it a different book? Yeah, that's a different. Yeah, that's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I'm old, so yeah, I just thought it was her book. But it was just like I told Matt, I was like, "Congrats, buddy, but you're fucked. You're not going to win against that thing." <laughs> 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 but yeah, all right, that's cool. Yeah, because uh, I mean, I just um, you know, I, I I one of my favorite things at Heroes is always stopping by your booth and seeing all the the goodies that uh, not necessarily stuff that you've published, but like just stuff that you've you've got in your collection. That uh, and it's like uh, I don't know. I find like digging in your crate is way more entertaining, and I always find stuff than like just digging in random crates. So you are uh, you are a, yeah, you're quite we, the curator. Um... Yeah, thank you very much. We, we, you know, Matt and I actually were going to go a little crazy this year at HeroesCon with like almost creating a Cancor membership kit. And we had all these things planned. And um, the only one that saw fruition because of, you know, the COVID stuff was we ended up doing a sticker sheet. 
and it pays homage to the old school stick-ons. Do you nice. know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, so it's, 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 you know, the ads we would see in all these comic books we were reading growing up, you know, Marvel and DC characters that you could stick on your jean jacket or stick on the wall or stick on your book. Yeah. And so, and so Matt did this wonderful page, um, in, in the collection, um, showing the stick-ons, but they're all Cancor stick-ons. Awesome. And the, the weird, the weird thing is, is that, you know, I saw this ad forever and I never saw the actual stick-ons until like five years ago when I was like, I'm going to find them went on eBay and I found them and I bought some. And so I took the template of the actual stick on and just changed it for Cancor. So that'll be coming up. That's one of the fun things you would have seen at our tables at heroes. Con. Dibs, yeah, on, dibs sure. on a couple sheets. No doubt. No yeah. doubt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. By the way, uh, just to wrap it, the, the, the thing from Emil was, uh, was my, it's called um, our favorite thing is my favorite thing is monsters and it was a it was uh the free comic book day uh fantasy yeah, free comic book day gotcha. last yeah year. see that makes more sense i thought it was her book which i thought came out like years ago oh yeah, yeah no, and, you know i just glanced at it still, and i was like this doesn't make sense it's still an odd category because it's it's like one shot a single issue or one shot single issue implies that it's still part of a series to right. me um, and that's definitely a graphic novel. It's a standalone. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, I think. And, and now you know, Matt, can't, Matt can't. He can't do any more freak stories because it's a one shot, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry, Matt. Nope. Chris, I don't know if you've ever been involved as an Eisner judge or whatever, but from what I understand, with the Eisner judging, you know, a lot of times, and, and I'm totally speculating here, but they get in a room and they basically have to come up with, and a lot of the categories there, they, they do repeatedly, but they have a lot of reign to, uh, to tweak the categories. Like it's, it's rare that if you look at the, the categories and nominations year to year, that they're all the same. They do, they do often. And, and my understanding is what that's about is that they have a lot of artistic license to, um, recognize works. So they kind of take the works that necessarily fit into the given categories and then think, okay, let's, can we, can we recognize these in another way? Uh, I'm not suggesting that's why, uh, you know, why the freak was was put into that particular category, but it could be an explanation. Oh yeah, no, and I'm totally fine with um, the freak being in that category. Um, and yeah, I get it. I mean, that judging the Eisers, that's an insane thing to try and do. My hats off to those judges that do it because, uh, I mean, I I did a judging for Mocha one time mm -hmm. and you know it took me a whole weekend to read all the submissions and that was you know it's a legit bucket list thing for me they have I, to read it, it's a it, i would it's a dream i would love to do it one year i, I would think it'd be amazing <laughs> well, here's, supposedly here's the thing is never ask jackie to be a judge because once you do that you'll never be a judge <laughs> <laughs> well there you go then i'm all right then i'm still alive yeah yeah just just keep on playing it cool and maybe mm -hmm. one year <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right, gentlemen. Well, uh, should we segue into uh, that book we all read? And uh, in doing so, I think we're we're going to say goodbye to Chris. Bidding adieu. Yeah, guys. I'm sorry. I did. I didn't do my homework. So I guess you know. Oh, that's okay. Uh, the door's always open. Yeah. You want to come on for a month straight? Hey, <laughs> yeah, who are we to say, say? Before we do let you sign off, it. Uh, it literally made me sick to my stomach thinking about the fact that we've been doing the show as long as we have and have known you for as long as we have and we've never had you on. Like it's 
it is a gross, uh, random cosmic oversight. Certainly, yeah. it was never intentional. Well, no, so. no. Here's the thing. Like I said, I'm old. So you could have told me I've been on, and I'd be like, yeah, I, I believe you. <laughs> no, I know. You know my, I know. Memory, my memory isn't what it used to be. And I mean, actually, I thought maybe I was on with Jim Rugg at one point, but maybe I'm thinking just him being on, man. That must be it. Yeah, I mean, um, you could say kayfabe wouldn't exist without us. So, I mean. Uh, it's very know, true. Oh, yeah. Did, no, we did no, have I mean, both on back when, in the day. And, uh, no, when you, when, you, when you guys championed aphrodisiac and we were seeing spikes and orders, we were like, okay, we got to pay attention to these 11 o'clock guys. That's right. The, the 11 o'clock comics they, they effect know what was, they're doing. Uh, was around the... Uh, yeah, exactly. That's right. Precedes. Well, that was... Not only did you guys, you know, uh, give me a big spike on my webcomic when I started doing that because Vince profiled it and I was seeing all this traffic from this site, this thing called 11 o'clock comics... You were the first podcast I ever listened to. Oh, I never that? heard a podcast before. Oh, yes. And I was like, well, I guess I'll listen to this. And I, I, I just clocked in. I'm about to hit, I think, 4,000 hours on Stitcher of podcasts. And so that's all thanks to you. Wow. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's I'm, I'm sorry for that. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Seriously. No, that's great, though. That's pretty cool. Well, yeah. So, so Chris, we 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 swear to you, we need to have you back on because I, I mean, you know, you. I hope you know that we we do adore uh, Ad House. I mean, I'm looking at the list of books, and, oh, and I, yeah, yeah. I, I think that it is truly. I mean, for someone who this has been a labor of love going on, I think 18 years now, right? Um, 2002, right? Yeah, this year? yeah. This is yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, I mean, like it's it's, and we have we have talked about a, a vast a vast a many of these books as well, but but I mean, these are just it's an exceptionally curated and wonderful collection of of books that really i think a lot of them wouldn't have found a home uh were it not for you and and i think it would be a, a gross uh you know offense to the beauty of the uh of of the industry if these books weren't out there so we i, I think we definitely would love to have you back and just kind of riff on uh you know on your, your sort of a little career retrospective and just talk shop uh, again much sooner than uh than, than a decade from now so Oh, I appreciate that. And yeah, we'll we'll definitely do that. Right on. We'll talk well, fanzines. Sure. On, yeah. Oh, oh sure. Yeah, we can do that too. Yeah, no Jason doubt. won't be here. I will I'll be silent in that part, but that's <laughs> <Yeah. cool>. <laughs> <laughs> It's not that I dislike fanzines, I just don't know much about them. I I read them when Vince tells me to and then I enjoy them and then I wait for him because to Because they're the paper versions of D V D backup features. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, I am not much one for ephemera. I do, I just <laughs> I, I am not a process guy, it seems like. Um, and I know you're all cringing at that idea, but uh, <laughs> it does hurt. But, yeah, just speak. I'm speak. This is a week of speaking one's truth, and I'm speaking <laughs> the truth right now. So. Of all the hills to die on, yeah. that's right. <laughs> all right, thank you very much for being here, Chris. We loved having you. As we yeah. said, anytime you yeah. want to come back, that door is yeah. wide, wide open. Thank you very much. All right, have fun with your homework, guys. Yeah, have, a night. have a great night. Yeah. Bye. So, Matt, I got to ask before we transition to the. Uh, to the to the creep show talk um you know we've known you a long time you obviously just repped yourself selling your art commissions and whatnot yeah. and uh you have recently jumped into the uh the big boy world of the art rep uh mm-hmm. and you're working with cam at inky knuckles so um you know full disclosure i love cam uh my wife hates cam because i've spent <laughs> money with cam in the last uh, year or so since he's gone out on his own yeah but uh how's that how's that gone because i know it was a, a big it's always a big the big step for an independent creator to, to take that leap and kind of hand over, uh, you know, some aspect of control of not only your 
art, but your economics, uh, you know, because obviously a lot of you are control freaks, uh, understandably, because, you know, you control every process of your work until that point. So how has it been going? No pressure. I guess I'm putting on the spot here in case it hasn't been going well. But uh, but uh, have you enjoyed the experience and has it like made life easier? Uh, it's the best decision I've made so far in in my short comics career. Uh, I have it's gone so far above and beyond what I expected um, just in terms of uh, uh, it's how I'm making a living right now. Um, it's exposed me to a broader audience. Um, and the most important part is that being part of that crew, because you, you see the, the people that he's got um, under that banner um, it's elevated the way I think about art, the way I create art. It's, it's made me up my game. I don't use that term very often, but it's, it's true in this case. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't be happier. It's nice. been great. Yeah. He, he is as, as a consumer of art, he has taken a big step, you know, in a very short period of time, he has risen up. I think the ranks of the art reps as a customer, uh, he, I told him the other day, I think he's right up there with, with Felix and, mm-hmm. and, and Paolo. I mean, I think he is, he's really crushing it uh, in terms yeah. of customer service and I think fair pricing and uh, just attentiveness. Um, I think he's doing a great job. So, yeah, I, that, and it takes all that off of my plate. You know, it's, um, it's hard when you sit uh, at the computer and you're, you're emailing people back and forth about what they want and, you know, I'm on stamps.com figuring out the shipping and all that stuff. I don't have to deal with any of that anymore. So that in and of itself is great. But, um, just in terms of, uh, the, the way that cam communicates with the collectors that buy from him, I, I think that you're right. It's, it's on the level of Felix. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, um, and especially now, you know, I, I was very worried about how things would pan out over the last couple months. And um, I, I, I've brought in more work than the first month than, that I started with him, simply because he's been out there really promoting what I'm doing. And, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know what to say. It's It's yeah. been fantastic. Yep. No, that's really good to hear. I, I have to say I uh... – I think he, he like Felix has a great eye. Like like the thing that I'm seeing with, with his collection of, of artists that he's repping, uh yourself included obviously, uh and is very akin to Felix in that he's curating uh, he's curating artists that have a distinctive artistic voice mm-hmm. um and, and have an aesthetic that you just don't find uh, other places. And I think yeah. that uh that goes a long way. Um and I have to say, you know, you, you obviously have already graced me with a beautiful Moby Dick commission. And I've been, uh, I've been having him like through him kind of getting a lot of his guys to do, uh, their versions of Moby Dick. So it's been a lot of fun, but, uh, you already, I already circumvented him. Got got to you first sure. before he signed you. But, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's good stuff, but I'm glad it's working out for you. Cause, cause it seems like, uh, um, he is definitely moving units out there for all of you. Yeah, he, he definitely is. And I like the fact that he's bringing on people like Rich Tommaso, who's, um, yeah. You know, in my mind, I, you know, it's, he's uh, he's more on the indie side, and and I, I love what Rich does, and um, I was very happy when he came on board. Uh, there are some people in the works right now 
that you may or may not be privy to. I'm definitely not going to say here <laughs> on the show, but Spill I it. think uh, no, I can't. No, I'm kidding. Um, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there are some people that I, are are in the wings right now that I think um, are just going to elevate it to another level. So yeah, it's been great. Nice. Uh, you yeah. mentioned it. it uh, caused you to alter your approach and, and up your game. Can you enlighten, like how much further can you elevate your work? What, what, what steps did you take to whatever it was that translated to you and upping your game? Like, what did you, what did you do differently? I think just the thought process be, behind the composition behind, um, telling a story within the commission, uh, as opposed to just having a character standing there, uh, which is, you know, my my what I had been doing prior to signing on with Cameron was just doing these head sketches, which were either three quarter view or portrait view of just a person's face, and I was picking, you know, like jigsaw, so I could do a bunch of stitches, right? And it was fun, and they sold immediately for a lot less than I probably should have been selling them for, but. Um, it, you know, I was just happy there in that little rut of I'm just going to draw three quarter and portrait view faces and that's it, no backgrounds. And um, one of the one of the things that I had been doing prior to this, but I, I think is is what uh, is a major selling point for the work that I do is is doing cover recreations. Um, that was one of the things that actually got me started drawing Kankor was I was doing work for the, uh, the covered blog that Robert Gooden. Um, right. yeah. Oh yeah. 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 So, uh, I, I just really enjoy that. It takes a lot of, um, thinking out of it because the layout is already there, but it's also a learning process. You, you walk away from having recreated a classic cover and you've learned something at the end of it too. So, uh, that, that for me as a learning experience is great. And, um, I'm also applying that to the original pieces that I'm doing as well, trying to think about what, uh, what elements do I need to add to this in terms of negative space or, uh, you know, am I making this too busy? I did a, a, the, a character from that, uh, book, uh, berserk and originally it was supposed to be a full background, and as I'm looking at the composition, I'm like, man, if I just if if I start putting trees and stuff in the background, it's really going to muddy this up. And I talked to Cameron about it. And I said, you know, the the commission calls for full background, but I think the composition is better with just his cape and some white. And it, all that being said, it, it's just making me think a lot more about what right, I'm doing. Right. Yeah. You know? So having sequential pages function as a link in a narrative chain and a piece of original art that one can put on their wall and fulfill that aspect of it as well as being part of a whole. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. Yep. It's a yep. good way to look at it. Yep. Yeah. Sweet. All right. So, uh, you guys have any more questions about the original art or anything like that before we move on? Uh, no, you, I got my little, I got my little OA talking, you know, I got to always do that. Yeah, but, true. Uh, well, hey, it's, it's a worthwhile subject. Well, Jason, you had the question for Chris, and I don't think he answered it about the quote about the Frank quite. Yeah, we just kind of moved on, so I didn't want to. That was actually, re- um, I don't know why Chris didn't attribute this to him, but that was actually Jim Rugg said that. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, okay. I was at, 
I was when I first met uh, Jim at Dink um, a few years ago. I went back to his table after he had looked through my book, and he's like, "You know what your stuff reminds me of?" So I told Chris that. Um, so yeah, that's where that came from. Awesome. Okay. Nice. Well, we're going to do a four-headed monster here. We all read Stephen King's Creep Show, illustrated by Bernie Wrightson, taken from or adapted from the uh, George Romero film of the same name. Came out in 1982, mm. and I'm going to be Jason here for a second. Uh, have any? I'm, I, mean, I know I'm, what the answer is. <clears throat> have any of you read this prior to tonight? Yes. Yeah. David? Uh, I had it in my hands at one point, and I flipped through it, but no, I never read it in its entirety. Ah, good, good. Yes, same. I was was aware of it, but um, I just... For me, this is a. I mean, I've seen the movie probably ten times, but uh, but yeah, no, I I read this uh, like a week or two ago, and we agreed to do it. So. Sweet, sweet uh, cover art by uh, Jack Kamen, and uh, in the style of the legendary EC Comics, as is the movie. Um, but there's a little something a little different with the comic version of it. They flipped two of the segments, which is you know not a big deal. But if if the layman bought this book and we're just like hey it's it's not like the movie because it's different but i will say the dialogue is almost dead on with the movie mm-hmm. yeah it's really close yeah yeah for sure yep yeah and um any much sorry i should have looked into this but how how what was the lag between this coming out versus the movie i think it came up before because if you look at the cover, it says now a very scary movie. Oh, um, or or it coincided with it. Um, okay, I think it was yeah. close. If but I do remember having. But it was a comic made to adapt the film. I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yes. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I can't say for sure, but I think I had the the comic before I saw the movie. Because I, after reading the the comic, you know exactly what's going to happen in the movie. I mean, mm-hmm. it's all there. Um. Did you guys know who did the uh, art in the movie? I do. I knew you would. <laughs> no, offhand, I don't remember. The sequentials or the panels were done by Jack Kamen, but the uh, creep, also called the Spectre, in the the credits was done by Ron Friends. That's right. No, oh my shit. god! Wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yes. you get. And Jim Novak did the lettering right. in the comic in the movie, yeah. Yep, yep. So, I mean, it does have the authenticity of a, of a comic. It's not like they pulled somebody out of the art department at the studio and said, hey, sure. you know, do this up. These are legit comic book artists. And, and mm-hmm. I think it, it looks – some of the typography used in the movie is not all that great, I don't think. But uh, they nailed the comic. Um, so what did you think about the comic, guys? I loved it. I mean, it's it's the movie is um, the movie holds a special place in my heart. I mean, I, I definitely um, that I can't. And it, of course, Stephen King has to put himself in everything, which is great. And and I always enjoy when it when when he shows up in something. Um, but but to this day, I always chuckle. And whenever I see Stephen King, I think meteor shit. And yeah. obviously here he he's meteor crap. But uh, I mean the the movie. Um, because I, I lived in Yonkers and I've been around, um, 
I've been in apartments. I haven't always lived in apartments, but I've been around apartments and, and other people that have had um, that have had roaches that that, that have had those uh, you know great palmetto bugs and and we um, so so the final story always fucked with my head. Um, but in the I love that you said palmetto bugs <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> Uh, didn't some fall on his oatmeal? I don't remember seeing that in the, in 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 the in the story in the comic. Yeah, he grind. It, well, they were in the box in the movie, and he poured them into the thing, not looking. And okay. he, he ground it up, and yeah, because then he gets all pissed off, and he he looks in the box, and he pours it out, and all the bugs just pour out of the box, and that's when he freaks out and calls the the superintendent. And the uh, the the Leslie Nielsen Ted Danson. Uh, segment was was great in in the movie but i there are definitely stories for me that are stronger or that are visually um that are just imprinted in my head um because when i i I completely forgot about the um i shouldn't have but i forgot about the tasmanian double story and seeing it in the comic i was like oh yeah that's right and and so it was there but it, it wasn't for some reason that story from the movie isn't um, even in Resonator, just stick with me the way some of the other ones did. I think the comic is one of the rare instances from the period of a merchandising tie-in holding its own with the thing it's promoting. Because you guys know, whenever they did, you know, uh, like toy and or movie comics, they were always, you could tell that it was just a, a cash grab on a lot of right. them. They didn't have the 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 uh, artifice that elevated them, at least on a uh, a baseline level with the product, and I think Creepshow, because of Wrightson and King, definitely compares well with the movie. I think there are a lot of things the comic does way better than the movie. Um, not the least of which is if you're going to have Wrightson on visual visuals, the creatures that he comes up with, or at least his interpretation of the the designs that the studio gave him were far better than what we saw in the movie. I'm not going to slight Savini. I like Savini a lot. But Wrightson Zombie uh, in Father's Day, way better than the zombie in the movie. I think this, I agree with you on the zombies, but like the crate, I think the way they did the creature in the movie was, it also because I saw it as a little kid, the first time was much more frightening, I thought. But but again, I mean, that's probably more like we're it's talking one of those, about right, the nostalgia. And, it's like I remember is a little. I, I still see it in the mind of the, I don't know, the ten year old me or whatever when this movie came out. Then I I do now. Um, before you go on, Evans, I will say the thing. Having read this now for the first time, I just thought this was a a, a fantastic and just natural bridge between the film which was so obviously King's homage to EC and, and then this comic, you know, but then we get this comic version of the movie, which feels like it could have easily been an EC comic if it didn't come out in the, you know, the eighties. And so uh, it just seemed like a beautifully perfect transition uh, bridging the two things together in a way that, uh, you know, we always knew was there. So I, I thought it was a pretty nifty. I, I wish I had read it uh, long before this. Yeah. Well, I think the, the, the reason why it, it translates so well is because the movie meets it halfway. The movie's trying to resemble a comic book. Yeah, yeah, that's It does right. it very successfully. And mm-hmm. I think Romero is a perfect choice, not just because, you know, he had made the the Living Dead movies, but because he came from a commercial and industrial film background. So 
he's not a flashy, you know, there's not a lot of camera movement. There's no crane shots. It's very much just plant the camera. Everything's done in editing. Um, so his films resemble comic book panels anyway. So to, to have a movie that's designed to look like a comic book, I'm sure to me, it looks like Wrightson, and I was trying to find some information or maybe an interview with Wrightson about the creation of this book. He clearly had access to the film and was able to watch it over. Oh, and over definitely. Yeah. yeah. Because he's spot on with mm-hmm. a lot of these, uh, these images and, um, settings you know, this was not a case of somebody who just was given a few stills by the studio. He he was obviously looking at the movie. Right. Um, so, and another thing, I think Wrightson, had he been born in a different time, could have been an EC artist. I mean, mm-hmm. the, yeah. the, the space oh, between sure, yeah. Graham Ingalls and Wrightson is really thin. Yep. Right. And as I like to say, the space between Wrightson and Mr. Allison is very thin too. Mm, you're, I don't know about that. Oh, you're the, <laughs> Every you are, time you say that in Jason Groans, I'm right there with Jason. I'm like, no, that to me. <laughs> not style. I mean, I'm not talking pure style. You're not like the, you're not aping Wrightson, but there's some electricity and the, just the way you approach problems, graphic problems, vi- visual stylings on the page. It just, it speaks rights into me. That's a- well, I'll tell you what. I, so my copy that I have here in front of me, this thing is beat to shit. It's missing pages. And I, I think I showed you a, a picture on Instagram, Vic, Vince. I had this and Tom Savini's book, Bizarro, yeah. which was all about how he did the special effects for every movie he worked on. And, and it ends with Creepshow. And I, the year that this came out, I was nine years old, and these books stayed by my bedside for a good two years. And I forgot, just, I mean, I know this book inside and out, and it embedded itself in my brain, and then the movie as well, but the book, I mean, so I, I have to give credit to Wrightson for, for influencing me for certain um, at least from this book. Right. I mean, no one really ever takes note of their influences, right? You don't, sure. you're not, you don't look at a piece of art and say, Hmm, I'm going to file this away for future reference. Your brain just does it. Yep. And, uh, yeah, Wrightson had a, I mean, a huge influence on me too, but, um, if I may, before you jump, cause it's, you two are having artist talk right now and David and her, but sorry, as someone who, no, 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 no. I, but this is, I love that. Cause this is, this is why I collect art. Cause I, I love, I love this aspect of it. Cause I'm not creative like that. Uh, do, so do you both generally agree with, with what you just said, Vince? Like kind of, I mean, you said it offhandedly, like it was just gospel, but that, uh, you don't, you don't, uh, think, I mean, first of all, I'll, I'll take you at your word that you personally don't, uh, take, um, your influences directly and like file them away. But would you be confident in saying that that is the standard process? Because I would imagine there's gotta be creators that are much more process driven and very much do, like, uh, like we've even talked about. It. I mean, some of the the creators that have have that have been. We talked about it with them, um, like with Hitch, right? Like he was clearly a uh, he was clearly aping. Uh, you know, he was clearly aping his 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 uh, Alan uh, Davis. Alan Davis. I mean, um, at least, and again, maybe it was subconscious, but there was like a, there was definitely a lot of mental 
process in, in him, him whether he was knowingly doing it or not, making himself look like Alan Davis. So do you think it's just when you said what you said, you mean that that's the way you approach it? Or do you think that that is generally the way artists like just it's much more of a subconscious thing? I guess it's all a, a matter of the time of the exposure, mm-hmm. right? Because when I was a kid, first time I saw Jack Kirby, that's the only instance I could definitively say to you that I said to myself, I want to do this. This These pictures make me want to draw. When I saw Wrightson, I was in awe. But I I didn't say, wow, I wish I could do this, basically because I never thought I could do it as well as this man. But just the the the, the marks that he made on the paper spoke to me in a way that pushed me into a, a mindscape of just like wonder. Like, this is incredible that a human being could make me feel all these things with just lines and, and color and, and shape. But Jack was the only time I looked at it and I said, I want to be an artist of some kind. And then after my mother stopped crying, I said, you know, it's going to be okay. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's different for Matthew. I'm sure it is. Well, for me, I mean, I definitely copied panels out of this book outright, um, especially the corpse in the Father's Day section. Um, there, there are specific panels in here I sat and tried to duplicate all the way up into junior high. I would go back to this for reference. And in fact, when I did my heavy metal story last year, I went back to this for reference for that because I had to have a corpse crawling out of a grave. Um, however, when I started reading uh, the comics journal, they had the swipe file and taking it back to my book there is a page in my book that replicates a, a page from the comics journal with a swipe file and i was so against copying other artists from about the age 16 on that i stopped doing that at at, at, at any level um where I just felt like you have to create your own style. You can't look like another artist. And even seeing somebody like Sienkiewicz, his early stuff when he was clearly modeling his work after Neil Adams and doing a very good job at it, part of me was like, why would you want to do that? Um, Now I look back and I'm like, man, I could have learned so much if I had continued doing that. I think it stifled me to not copy other artists. But that that idea of like, Oh, swiping, that's such a bad thing. You, you can't take from another artist. Um, right. so I'm, I'm in a weird middle ground with, with all of that. Uh, you know, the influences are there, but I try to stamp them down and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing. I don't know. Yeah. You'll make them your own. But, um, when I heard, when I read that quote from Wally Wood, I hear you got an artist that's on a celestial level. Mm-hmm. Um, when he said, never draw anything you can copy, never copy anything you can trace, never trace anything you can cut out and paste up. And I thought, I, I was a little bit taken aback, thinking, in light of the man, I mean, in the wake of the man's work, which I was very familiar with, I thought, wow, this is a guy that's on like a godlike level. And he's saying, yeah, I'm not above copying. I'm not above, you know, tracing somebody else's work. But then he transformed it. That I think that's key. If if you can you can derive in, inspiration from anything, but as long as you filter it through the unique being that you are, I think that's okay. I mean, it, 
it, you're just you're translating. Yeah, well, especially you. if you're on the deadlines that true that yeah. he was on. Right, I mean, that that I'm sure was crucial. You know, don't sit there and try to reinvent the wheel when somebody's right next to you is probably drawing the thing that you need to draw in that moment. Just look over their shoulder. Right. Well, his work definitely didn't suffer for it. I mean, you know, heavy hitter. Uh, he's on, you know, Heaven's All-Star team as far as uh, comics go. But, mm-hmm. I mean, when I just the, – the, I can even remember that the first time I, I read that, I was like, wow, I was stunned. It, like, knocked the wind out of me. Because here sure. I thought, like, this guy drew everything painstakingly from scratch and it turned out not to be entirely true. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I love the book and I love Wrightson. Uh, this may hurt a little bit, but I don't think it's anywhere near Wrightson's top work. It, it's certainly a wonderful book and very accomplished. But when I look at stuff that came before, like his Swamp Thing, sure. it's the, this is the yeah. I mean, this isn't Frankenstein. I mean, it's, no. But this to me is this is when the. Um, I don't want to say the, 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 the chink in the armor, but um, it didn't seem like Wrightson was 100% invested in this for maybe the reason that his eye, you know, he had the eye problems uh, from a certain point of his, in his career on. I don't know. I, but I don't want to denigrate the work. I think it's it's outstanding, but it doesn't feel like – and even the thing that came after, like Cycle the Werewolf, this led – directly into cycle of the werewolf that that stuff's great too but it's like i don't know it's just it doesn't have that the rights and fluidity that i that i've that i had then come to expect from the man and then his punisher work at marvel looked even and and the batman thing the cult looked even different than this sure you know i I mean it's probably a product of age but well i think that he I, you know, I think the the Frankenstein portfolio or that book came out before this, and that probably just murdered him. Yeah, like he he probably was like, I'm never doing that again. And yeah, I get what you're saying. I think there is a lot of openness to this compared to right. Um, you know, especially but the Swamp Thing stuff. I've read interviews with him where he swore he'd never do another monthly book because. He he had such a tough time meeting deadlines on that, and I think he had to really pare down his style. Um, I, I I get what you're saying. I know that you know you were talking about that Greystoke uh, adaptation, David. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I've I picked up some some of the Marvel movie adaptations from the '80s, partly out of nostalgia, but partly because there's some decent artists that worked on that stuff, but. More often than not, very uninspired. I got the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark that John Buscema drew. Horrible, oh. uh, and I hate saying that about another artist. I should. I let me rephrase that. For John Buscema, clearly he did not care about this project at all. He, right. he this was just I got to get this done. And he also probably thought I'm never going to match the excitement of this movie. This is just a tie-in product. I think. Wrightson was a little more inspired with this than than the guys that were doing those Marvel adaptations were for sure. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree with that. Yep. I'm glad you uh, you pulled out of that crash landing because <laughs> I thought you were going to smirch my man. Oh, <laughs> no, I would. No, I no, would no, never. I, was I know. Get the vapors over here. So, <laughs> <laughs> do you own that book? What's that? You own that book? The Raiders. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, yeah. pull pull that out again sometime <laughs> soon. And tell me what you think. Well, I, I'm a bit of a I'm a, I have a sacrilegious relationship because you know you've probably heard me say I mean Buscema is my favorite old time artist, uh, and I do I mean obviously his art is understandably incredibly expensive, so I unfortunately only own a single page, and I'm thrilled to have it uh, from Avengers, but but. Uh, you know, uh, I think for a lot of people, his Conan work is the is like the stuff they they want to own or or, sure. or and and it does nothing for me. N- not like visual, like I don't think it's poorly rendered at all. But I just don't like for me. It's when I when I give reverence to Busema, it's because of how much he meant to me at Marvel and, and Avengers. And so like I have like zero. Like I've had many opportunities to buy Busema Conan pages. Uh, and actually, believe it or not, because there's so much of that out there they're far less expensive per page sure. than, than the Avenger stuff. And I just have had no interest, but, uh, but then I thought you were about to try it. Yeah. So we're good. Now we're good. But we're he, all good. <laughs> he, uh, apparently he didn't like superheroes at mm, all. He, he didn't. That was not, a he fun didn't. Gift. I am not spiritually aligned with John, like in the yeah. sense that I, uh, the reason I, I worship at his altar is the stuff that he basically did for a paycheck and didn't like yeah. doing. So, yeah. Well, can I say with this book, the one thing that it gets short shrift on this cover as far as credits is Michelle Wrights and right. um, coloring. I think the coloring on this book is amazing. I appreciate it, but I, I'd be lying if I said I wouldn't have rather seen it in flat color. Mm. It almost looks like pencil to me, like like almost like colored pencil. Uh, the effect it's soft. I like it. I'm I'm, I'm with uh, I'm with Matt on this. I like it. Oh, I don't dislike it. But if you want to capture the uh, feeling of an EC comic, uh, or at least the that's modern yeah, telling, I, I, I think, yeah, yeah I would have yeah. loved to see maybe some dot pattern and some some flat color. But that's just old fashioned me. Well, I wonder if they ever if they considered just having Jack came and do the whole thing. And we'll, I, I was really hoping to find some information on on how Wrightson got involved in this project because I know he he did stuff. Stephen King related after this, he did the illustrations in the later versions of the stand. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I, I couldn't find any videos that where he talked about how he got involved. Well, I'm glad he did because there are sequences in the comic that are much more horrifying than the movie. Um, I think when are you not uh, a fan of the movements, I like the movie. I, I'm the, this may be heresy, but I think I, I equate Romero the same way I do George Lucas. Had a couple of good films, the mm-hmm. majority, not so great. Like, you can't take anything away from night and dawn and most of day. I kind of like the creeps, um, but Martin, like, Bruiser. <laughs> there, there's a Romero has a good chunk of his catalog that just falls flat with me, like Lucas. Like Lucas got lucky, I think. Uh, Lucas is a more extreme example because I, I I shouldn't even have said it because I think Romero's a much more talented director than Lucas. But I think Creepshow is just like the especially the um, the Ted Danson uh, section the. Um, something to tide you over yeah Yeah. that uh part of the anthology is extremely weak to me i think it's too long and that's the one george edited himself so yeah i just i i think it's it's very indulgent leslie nielsen was fantastic in it 
Um, and that's that is you could say that about anybody that was in this movie. I think the performances are great. Yeah, agreed. But it's just it just goes on so long, and and then I think the the creations that Savini came up with are kind of cookie cutter. Um, they're really I, I don't know. I'll I'll say I, I tried to show the movie to my wife, and she is not a horror movie fan at all, and gets totally freaked out by. I, I put on the menu of Suspiria because we got a 4K TV, and I just wanted to to test it out. And uh, she couldn't even make it through the menu. Of that menu. <laughs> so we got to the something to tide you over sequence of Creep Show, and she was out. and And it made me think, like, well, this is actually really horrifying what they're doing, what he's doing to these people. Like, if you think about being buried up to your neck and you can't move, and how claustrophobic you, yeah, are, yeah, like yeah, that's that's pretty brutal. Um, but I do agree. I, I think it is a little. It, it's if I was going to skip one of the sections, I would probably skip that one. Right. It takes a long time to get to the payoff. Yeah. And and I'm in a movie to watch it again because I saw it so many times <laughs> growing up that I I don't know if 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 it would disappoint me now. Oh, I think it definitely holds up. Yeah, okay. I, I watched it um, Saturday. Oh, nice. yeah, just to because I, I need to be informed, right? Um, I I think all of it holds up. I, I remember when I saw it in the theaters. Um, I didn't think much of the "they're creeping up on you." I I, I liked it, but just because of the the fact that it's a, it's low hanging fruit, who's not going to be revolted by that many roaches, mm-hmm. right? It was an it was an easy pitch, but now I think that's the most effective uh, in terms of just how tight the script is and the the payoff at the end is is like a jackhammer with with all the roaches just pouring out of his mouth and his body it's like oh i just think about it it gives me the i get itchy you know and i think that was the intended goal right yeah but i mean i'm of two minds progressive horror for the day i think the creeping up on you is the winner but if you're going to go old school horror i think father's day is is the best segment I agree. I have a soft spot for Jordy Verrill, um, just because <laughs> my dad and I, my yeah. dad loved that sequence so much. And so I just think of him anytime I watch that. But yeah, Father's Day, I, great way to kick off the movie for sure. Oh, yeah. And you can tell, you mentioned Suspiria, you could tell that George was paying very close attention to Dario Argento mm-hmm. with the gel lighting. With the yep. purple on the one side and the or the red and the blue, and it's just so it there's there are sections in here that are very Italian. Yep. Um, but that's not a a detriment that it works. That's why they do it. Yeah. Um, but to, just to get back to the book, because we don't want to give Mister Wrightson short shrift. I think speaking of Jordy Verrill, I think that the depiction of what happens to him after he touches the meteor is much more fully realized in the comic than it is in the movie. They just pasted some, some, you know, plants on Stephen King where I love the fact that writes and showed one human eye mm-hmm. and you don't get that in the, he's just a big moss dude in, in the movie. I mean, it's effective, but not nearly as effective as, and when the, the, the shotgun goes off and you see it ripping, a chunk of of the like that's a just a great panel. Yeah, it works. I agree. Yeah, these last the last three panels of uh, of that story where the head is slumped over mm. and you're just seeing the 
the innards dripping out. Uh, that's yeah, and that I think the coloring on that's great too. Yeah, it's it's really nice, and the way she picked the uh, the tan to go with the uh, in the background to go with the green is oh, very mm-hmm. effective. Yeah, and yeah. then the bottom panel that's just a canny color choice with the purples or the violets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you're right. The colors on the money. The, you really can't uh, ding any of the, the the color work here. It, it works. For it works. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I, again, I like, uh, Wrightson's, uh, Tasmanian devil way more than the, the thing that Savini came up with. It's cool creature in the movie, but this is a feral, just maniacal beast. Um, you know, uh, there's only so much you can do with, with latex and, you know, and it, it works in the movie, <laughs> but this is just a crazy kinetic creature in the comic. Well, that was the era, too, when, uh, you know, he had American World from London and the Howling, where mm-hmm. there were all these hairy creatures out there. And s- sometimes they're very successful and other times not as much. Um, you know, you never even really see the werewolf in American World from London because they kept it in the shadows. They weren't super happy with the, the actual suit that the guy was wearing when he was walking around. The transformation sequence is still one of the greatest pieces of cinema ever. Truth. But... You know, but the well, I won't talk about that movie. I'll talk about the book. Sorry. <laughs> um, the the thing about um, the the creature in the crate in the film was that Savini was just known as a gore guy. You know, he was known for gore effects. You need somebody's head to explode. You need a arm chopped off or a machete through the throat. That was really the first time he had to sculpt a monster. He'd always wanted to do it, and he actually talked to Rob Bottin. Um, who had just done the howling about how to create that. So I think he had a lot of limitations there because he had never really done anything like that before. So I agree with you hundred percent. I think the way Wrightson took that design and rendered it in this book is way more effective. Yeah. He streamlined it a lot. Yeah. It's not so alien looking. Um, but so if you had to pick American werewolf or the howling, which one would you go with? Oh, American Werewolf, all all day long. Mm. Are you asking in terms of what movie I think is better, or what I think? Yeah. In terms of, oh, I much prefer The Howling. Me too. Yeah. I I I love the transformation in American Werewolf. I love the dream sequence is amazing with the the Nazi um, uh, wolves. Yeah. But, but there's something about the darkness in uh, The Howling, and well, first of all, the campfire scene give me a break when when i saw that on the big screen i'm like yeah i'm home but no i think the 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 lycanthropes in the howling are much more disturbing and effective uh, and the brain picking um than the uh, american werewolf yeah i think that i i was more in in tune with humor in american Werewolf. okay uh, just because of well, you know, my parents took me to see that movie. They would go to see a movie, determine whether or not it was suitable for me, and then they would take me to see it later. So I saw The Howling in the Theater in America Woolworth when I was eight, maybe. Um, so I had to close my eyes during the nude scenes. <laughs> but all the gore and all the mayhem was fine. Um, I just would say American Wolf because of uh, Jenny Agater. Yeah. 
That's such She's a huge crush cool. on her. Same, same. Yeah. yeah. And I will say the ending to the howling kind of sucks balls. But, <laughs> you know, I, I think they just pulled it out of their ass. But that's okay. Yeah. It's, it's memorable, I guess. I mean, I was six when it came out. Wow. So I didn't see it until it made it to like HBO. But I remember those nude scenes. I think they were definitely some of the first nude scenes I ever saw. Probably because my parents didn't realize what they were getting into because they wanted to watch a vampire, uh, werewolf movie. So. Yeah. Well, that opening sequence in the porn theater, that was rough. Yes. I, that was very uh, uncomfortable sitting in the theater watching that. <laughs> uh, just to get By the back. way, as a parent, there's a, I remember being a kid and going to the movie and there'd be those obligatory moments in a, in a, in a film where you just knew your parents didn't know that it was going to be in the film and they're like, got to be cringing. Yeah. And then I think it was way easier to be the kid in those moments than to be the parent. Cause I've been oh, on both God, sides yeah. of that. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember us renting blood sucking freaks. Oh no. <laughs> made it about, I don't know if you, I know Vince, you've seen it. Hell yeah. Uh, if the other two guys have seen it or not, but I mean, five minutes in the movie, my dad was, you leave, leave the room. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised he didn't, you know, burn the, the VHS tape. The yeah. movie's rough. Well, I think it happened a lot when, because we, we obviously are all roughly the same age. We grew up when, when cable TV became a thing, mm-hmm. you know, obviously because it was so new, we, every, everybody was obsessed with watching the movies, right? I mean, like the movies, because it was like the first time you could watch movies in your home. And I just remember lots of times to your point, Matt, like we put on a movie and we didn't have the internet back then. So parents didn't, if they hadn't already seen the movie, they didn't know what they were getting into. And so many times we started watching a movie and they'd be like, go to your room. <laughs> like, yep. they'd be like, yeah. they're like, no, we got to change this. Like, cause they just didn't know what was about to happen. Well, and then of course, as a kid, you didn't print that and be like, Oh my sure. God, I got to find the next time it's on oh, HBO yeah. so I can watch it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, what do you guys think about the theme? I don't know if you remember in the movie, but it's the only part of it you see is on the cover of this, which was the little boy having the comic book taken away by the dad. Yeah. Um, which first off is ridiculous because the boy's room is floor to ceiling <laughs> horror movie memorabilia. Yeah. Dad's upset about this fucking magazine. Like, where did yeah. you get this? Who sold this to you? Like, look around the room. Um, that sequence makes me a little jealous because he has two things that I always wanted and never bought. The, the Shogun Warriors Auto Godzilla boat. and the Rodan. I have I had both of those. I still have the Godzilla. Yeah. Um, I don't know what uh, my problem was back in the day. I, I didn't ask for it. I, I I was the guy for the, the Mazinga and the Radine. I had those. I still have mm-hmm. them. But I just – I didn't – It the Godzilla looked weird to me. And the, yeah. And the fist was, thing. Uh, and then he had basically roller skates on. Yeah, so I never really wanted it. But then as I grew up and I kept seeing it at cons, I'm like, I really should pick that up one of these days. And um, maybe yeah. next con. I had them to. and they were just solely for getting beaten up by my G.I. Joes. Yeah. Well, you know who that kid is, right? I don't. It's Joe Hill. Is it? Oh, really? yeah. oh that's okay. awesome. Yeah. Oh, nice. Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> yeah, sweet. But um, you you must have a little bit of uh, uh, mind reader in you. The intro for this week's episode is the sequence where the father's like, "What are you reading this shit?" I just oh, nice. I pulled it right out of the movie and you know, stuck it. Well, at the... Did you guys? I mean, obviously, you were just talking, Jason, about you know parents telling you to leave the room or shutting a movie off. 
something like this, would your parents have been really bothered by you having this set of you know, the no, I don't eight think or so. Nine. No, I mean, because again, like I, I remember vividly watching this in the howling, like, much like with our, I think a lot with our country, uh, uh, this quasi puritanical uh, underpinning of our country. I, I feel like my parents, especially my dad, my parents were divorced at a very young age. So I, I like I had, you know, weekends with my dad. It seems like when I would think back on it, he always was cool with me watching like any horror film, yeah. like, with, like any, any, any horror monster. And it just didn't matter. He was cool with it. And, and occasionally you get like some titty in there because they kind of mix them and it would just be what it was. But yeah, but like things like Porky's or, you know, like, mm. uh, like hot dog, the movie, like those yeah. were like, oh, you can't watch this. And then I'd have to like make a mental note. Oh, I got to watch this later when yeah. they fall asleep, you know? Um, yeah. And it's, on Rio or... yeah. and it's silly, right? Like, like in retrospect, again, you talk about now that I'm a parent. I mean, uh, I was much more apt to get really disturbing bad dreams or, or like need counseling from the shit that they let me watch. Uh, and then yeah. I never really bothered me, but it could have. And, and, you know, versus seeing a titty, but, um, yeah, I mean, I I remember as a parent the only the I mean the first time this ever happened to me was dead the first Deadpool movie because uh, I I knew it was rated R but like <laughs> I had taken my what made it awkward wasn't that I was with my kid what made it awkward was that uh, and it just, when when the first Deadpool came out the only one of my kids that was old enough to see it was my oldest Colin I think he was uh, twelve or thirteen and and so I took him but but he his friends wanted to go. And his parent, his friend, like many parents, they weren't into the superhero movies. So it was very frequent that I would take them all to see the superhero films. Mm. So when Deadpool was coming out, it was like, all right, dudes, let's all go see Deadpool. So I'm sitting with my son, which is not a problem, and three other, like, 13 year old, like, newly pubescent or soon to be pubescent boys. And we get to that scene where, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're expending, you know, they're having sex every holiday. And then it's a woman's appreciation day and she pegs him. Yeah. And, you know, they don't even show it, right? But they say the words and she's got the strap on. And I just, like, sitting there with this, like, just flash of ice cold, like, pangs of nervousness. And I look over and they're just all laughing hysterically like they knew what pegging was. Yeah. So now I'm, like, triple confused because I'm like, oh, no. And I, it, it literally was on my mind for the rest of the film so much so that when I dropped all the kids off, I texted their parents to let them know that this happened because I didn't want their kids to be joking about it to them and like them be mortified. Now, luckily, all of them laughed it off. They didn't care one way or the other. But like, I just remember cringing at that, and it brought back memories of when I was a kid and I'd be watching movies with my dad, and there'd be occasionally like this like awkward moment where there'd be like straight up sex scene or something in the middle of a movie, that, like an action movie. You know, we'd be watching an action movie, and then, like suddenly you'd have the the girl with her, her shirt off getting banged, and and you could just sense how like tense he'd be, like, oh, oh no. yeah, yeah, like what is this, you know? <laughs> so I remember um, my father took me to see John Borman's Excalibur. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, did, we did too. Yeah, and that's, yeah, that's one for sure was part of the ep- repertoire. Yeah, yeah, and the sex scene with the armor on, and mm-hmm. my dad's mm-hmm. like, "Wow, guy's in a hurry." <laughs> didn't, yeah. didn't he want to take? I was my parents cracking up laughing at that scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but I, I must have either had uh, very progressive parents or ones that didn't really care because they never limited or restricted anything that I uh, watched, especially horror movies. My mother maybe was trying to prove a point. She took a copy of Vampirella and Dracula Lives away from me. But at that time, I was like seven or eight. Yeah. So, you know, no, I think she wanted to establish there are things that you shouldn't be looking at. And then 
she gave them back to me and nothing was ever restricted past that point. So, you know, I, I, maybe it was an authority thing. I don't know. But I remember watching the most god-awful horror movies and they, they just didn't care. Yeah. I remember um, I was actually, it was a sleepover for my friend Makio Watanabe's birthday. It was me, Makio, and Billy Charleroi. That's how much I remember this. And uh, our parents were all friends, too, you know, one of those deals. And Makio was, like, the coolest kid in the world because his dad was Japanese and his mom was from Denmark. So he had all the awesome Japanese uh, robots and transforming robots way before we could get them. Mm-hmm. And he had Legos that we had never seen before. Uh. So he was literally, like, the magic kid because, like, we would come over to his house and he'd have stuff we just – didn't even couldn't dream existed you know and then like for our birthdays he would bring us like an import you know like something that wouldn't be in the u.s maybe ever or at least for a while so we're hanging out you know whatever and uh they were i think playing poker drinking whatever you know and, the, and, and we were having the sleepover and he had cable and we put on skinamax or whatever that quick probably it was probably cinemax and i remember it was it was uh it was lady chatterley's lover oh that's a good one <laughs> yeah and we're we are just like transfixed on this motherfucker, right? We're like, we are like ten, and we were young, so it was like prepubescent. So it wasn't like you know we were going to like oh I need to go to the bathroom, roll one out. It was just purely like that pre like you know yeah. like titillation, and we were like probably each like three feet from the screen, just staring at it, and like they just walk in and bust us. And uh, for some reason, I, though, I just feel like after that they kind of just like gave up the goat. Like they were just like ah, it is what it is. Like. These kids are going to find a way, you know, they're going to find a way to see titties and ass, you know, so you guys should really get on blood sucking freaks though. Okay. Yeah. If you want, you want to, want to curl your toes, put, there's a scene in it with a beheading and a dwarf named Ralphus and they, it's, it's all implied. They don't really show it, but he picks up the severed head and unzips his zipper. Yeah. It's great. And there's, there are, the ending involves severed penises and hot dog buns. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> it's like one of my favorite movies of all time. Nothing gets you giggling more than body horror. I love, well, no, I just love bad uh, transgressive movies. And Bloodsucking yeah. Freaks is definitely one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. So what's everyone's favorite of these five stories? I mean, both either in the film version or the, or the, uh, the comic. I like that question. Thank you. <laughs> let, let me let me think on it for a second. Um, uh, young me would have said um, Father's Day in the movie. Current day me definitely uh, creep up on you. Uh, as far as the comic goes, oh uh, boy, I think I'll go with Father's Day too for the comic. Um, you could tell maybe Wrightson was a fan of Adrian Barbo. <laughs> or, or he knew, you know, like, that she was the actress uh, that played um, Billy because, man, he accentuated the thing for which Adrian Barbo was known. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that panel where he's the monsters biting her face. Yeah. Yep. Good yeah. lord. It's either real cold in there or <laughs> she likes it. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So what about you, Matt? Uh, you know... In the movie, I would have to say the crate um, is is probably the most well-rounded. It's funny. Um, I mean, they're all funny, but I, I think that that's got some really great comedic moments in it. And um, I, I think as a kid, it definitely scared me. 
uh, I'm with Jason on that. Um, that freaked me out seeing the eyes flash when they first look in the box. There was a lot of terror about them just opening that box, the suspense of just what is in this thing. And, um, in the comic, uh, I'd have to go with Father's Day. I, I think you're right. I think um, Bernie Wrightson was the most inspired in that in that particular story. It's probably the shortest one in here. I think yeah. it's the shortest segment of the movie too. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and it's got you know it's a very classic EC type story. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, man. On both, I, I think Father's Day uh, for all the reasons you guys said. I think it's the best rendered. It looks like he just put a little extra touch of love in it uh in the comic so that gets my vote but uh, but definitely in terms of the film and and this is as i said i haven't i've seen the film many many times but i haven't seen it in a long time at least 10 years and uh the crate for me is always the when i think of this film that i immediately think of crate hmm. uh the for the movie um the, it's it's lonesome death of jordy rail um I don't, it, it's, I, I'm never, I've never really been a, um, a horror guy. And I, I kind of like, um, I, a defense mechanism, I'll, I'll inject humor into anything. I'll, I'll just, I, things seem to be more like real life when, um, nothing is just straight scary or funny uh, uh, across the board. So just the way, the way Stephen King is in in basically that one man play, um, it's I it, it, that's what I think about. Um, I like the greatest for Jason. The meteor is 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 what I think about when I think of this movie. So it it um, I really liked the version in the comic, um, but I think as far as the comic goes, uh, I'd probably have to give it to the crate. Interesting. Yeah. When I think of Romero's best movies, there's always a subtext, a very, very rich subtext. Night of the Living Dead, Plight of the Black Man, uh, Dawn of the Dead, Consumerism, uh, Day of the Dead, Military Industrial Complex, right? The, the, uh, they're creeping up on you. There's a subtext of racism in there. Mm-hmm. So it's, richer, it's yeah. a richer segment for me now. But when I first saw the movie, I was only interested in the wow cool. And yeah, and that's maybe why the first one does it for me. It definitely, you know what? Uh, they're creeping up on you feels like something out of Land of the Dead, where you've got um, that Dennis Hopper character, right? Who's, you know, sort of this industrialist who lives in this high rise and he's above all the zombies. He's above all the survivors and he's, you know, trying to maintain his old life when all this stuff is just, you know, eventually going to tear him down. So, yeah, I I get that. Now, do you share my um, opinion of Romero's au revoir or do, do you like him more than I do? No, I, I think once you said that, um, you know, uh, like with Martin or the crazies, I've seen each of those once and have never felt the need to go back and watch them again. I, I, it's not that they're bad movies. They just don't have the punch that right. the dead movies have or Creepshow has. Um, and, and again, I think, 
you know, he's not the super stylish director like Argento. Um, there's not a lot there um, visually unless it is just, you know, massive amounts of gore. There's a lot to think about. Yes. Uh, but, you know, and then there's, you know, there's stuff like there's something about vanilla. I've, I've never watched that. I don't know if I ever want to see that season of the witch. Um, I, I honestly, I've never seen any of either of those two, so I can't comment on those. Um, yeah, I don't want to, you know, denigrate him cause he, he, he has his very, very high points. But f- when I first started to notice that maybe this guy wasn't all, uh, he was, uh, purported to be was, have you ever seen two evil eyes? Yes. Yeah. When you juxtapose Romero and Argento, I mean, yep. the shortcomings are glaringly apparent. Yeah, I think that's why I, I now that you say that, that's why I, I made that connection was because of that. Like in those two movies, I, yeah, th- that was a bad choice to to pair those two together, I think. Right, right. Cool. Anything else we want to cap this uh, creep show investigation off with? Final thoughts? Well, um, either on the comic or the movie doesn't or both. Well, I definitely think the movie, and again, this is from the context of how I remember it, not a more recent viewing like you, um, is one of the better efforts um, for putting a Stephen King idea on uh, on uh, film. You know, I think I'm a huge Stephen King mark, uh, and there are certainly uh, things that uh, have been adapted that I've enjoyed, but most of them I've enjoyed almost in spite of themselves more because I like the source material so much. Um, but I think this one definitely was, uh, because it was King taking time to pay homage to things he liked, um, that weren't just straight out of his own mind. I, I, I think this all kind of worked in its own weird way by having all of these different, uh, voices who were good at their respective jobs come, come together. So I, I think it's, I think it's definitely something, for horror fans, if if you have, I can't imagine if you're a horror fan, you haven't seen it. But if you haven't, um, I'm sure it's streaming somewhere, right? Like, where did you watch it, Vince? I would imagine it's probably pretty easy to find. It's VHS. Nah, I have it on. True, true, true. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but uh, yeah, two thumbs up, and I yeah, I thought the adaptation was terrific. Nice, and I'm I'm really really glad. Um, at no point until right now did anybody mention the sequel. There's there's actually three. <sighs> And there's that new Shutter TV show. Yeah, yeah. Which I won't talk about. That <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I remember from from Creep Show Two is the raft. Yeah, because that freaked me to fuck out. But um, yeah, that was said the better. Yeah. Well, Jason, uh, two of these stories, I guess, were short stories, uh, prose stories. Do you do you know which ones those were? Uh, I did at one point, but offhand, I don't remember. Okay, I'm I'm assuming yeah. they were in one of his early collections. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. remember. Yeah, well, I remember reading Dance Macabre around the same time, and that was the first time I learned about the EC Comics um, uh, controversy and Frederick Wortham and all that. Uh, I I knew of Tales from the Crypt. I you know you, you can't not know about that, but I don't think there were a lot of reprints of those books at the time. I don't think the Russ Cochran stuff was was out in the early 80s were they Vince? yeah but they were probably well without your well outside of your reach as a kid yeah. they, they were expensive yeah. yeah yeah 
So between this and reading about the EC comics and dance macabre, this was a, a good history lesson for me as a kid too. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I highly recommend both the, the comic and the movie. Uh, the EC, uh, Wortham, um, incident was probably the single most damaging thing to the growth of the comic book ever. Um, well, don't you, do you think the bounce back though corrected itself pretty majorly? Like when the underground started? Well, that's just the thing. It had to happen in the underground. Can you imagine if comics were left to develop top level as they would have, but uh, instead of they, they had a retreat and go on to this grassroots um, movement where, yeah, we can do anything we want and skirt the, the regular distribution channels. Um, what could, it's like if Hendrix never died, what could comics be today if they were allowed to progress and reach plateaus unobstructed by witch hunts and uh, psychologists trying to make a career for themselves? You know, it's an interesting question. I have never thought of it that way. Well, there there was a uh, there was a panel. I'll I'll uh, send you guys the issue number. But there was a comics journal issue where Art Spiegelman and some uh, European writers and comic book creators uh, did a panel about Bondesine and the differences between American comics and European comics. And that was brought up how European comics grew in a way that American comics did not for that reason. And they brought up Wortham and exactly what you just said, Vince, like the growth was stunted. And would we be at the level that, you know, the, the European market was in the eighties. The but I mean, that, that work made its way to us in some ways. I mean, through NBM and heavy metal and mm-hmm. Catalan, like, it found its way. It just got sidetracked a little bit. I, here's my thing about Wortham because everybody loves to shit on him and I don't blame him because he was an opportunist and he was somebody who I don't know if he had people's best interests in mind. I think he was, you know, very much caught up in the idea of the, Oh, people are listening to me and they, they're taking my ideas seriously. But the parents reaction to this stuff, you know, this is in the early fifties and these parents, went through world war two, uh, the depression. Some of them went through world war one and the Spanish flu and polio and all this horrible stuff. And now they see their kids reading these horrible, horrible things. And they're thinking, what is happening here? And they don't take personal responsibility. They don't think, well, maybe this is a karmic thing from all this shit that we've been doing for the first part of the century. That's playing out in our kids' minds and in these comics. Um, but I, I think I understand the parents' fears because they had lived through real horror. Um, and and I, I think that that perfect storm of what Wortham was doing, psychology was fairly new. People weren't really talking about this kind of stuff. It was very easy for him to get a foothold in parents' minds and like, oh, this is to blame. This is to blame. Um, I, and I'm not, I'm not trying to justify what he did or what any of those parents did. I, I just... I, I think there was a reason why it happened beyond just, you know, him doing what he did in that book as far as what he laid out and saying, 
you know, this is why your kids do bad things. I, I think that parents were looking for something because the world was pretty fucked up at that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, and it didn't help matters that EC basically gave him everything on a silver platter. I mean, there's a lot of rough stuff <laughs> in, in those EC comics. Yeah. yeah. Uh, would I be happy or, or would I allow my children to read them? Sure. Because it's only fantasy. It's not real. But that kind of stuff, uh, approaches to that stuff back then were much different. Well, I think you brought up something a, a couple weeks ago, and this was a thing that was touched upon in the Senate hearings when William Gaines was was asked about the influence of comic books and art in general. And he was saying, you know, like, look, it's just, you know, uh, this is a phrase that, that gets thrown out a lot. It's just lines on paper. It's just, you know, this is fantasy. But then the person that was asking him these questions tripped him up by saying, well, do you feel like art can inspire and educate and raise consciousness and normalize things, you know, that not phrased exactly that way, but does art have the power to do all these positive things? And William Gaines said, yes. He's like, well, why couldn't it affect you negatively? Mm, yeah, yeah. And he didn't really have a good answer for that. And I think uh, Gary Groth actually interviewed William Gaines about that specific point in the Senate hearings. And, you know, I, I think we do have to step back or at least, you know, I do as an artist and say, there there should be power in art. It should be more than just lines on paper. It should affect you. And I would want somebody to look at my stuff and maybe be a little disturbed or a little bit taken aback. And and there are people that ask me about what I do and, and I'm afraid to hand them my book. Not that there's anything gratuitous in it. There's no hardcore sex. There's not even really any real gore, but there's something about it unsettling that I've tried to put in there and, and, everybody's barometer is different for how that affects them. Um, so I think it's a little bit disingenuous for someone like William Gaines to say, well, you know, it's just, it's just fantasy. It's just kid stuff. But I also want to create the best art I can possibly create. And EC was trying to change people's minds with stories like the master race. That story has tremendous amounts of power. Yeah. So, you know, it's there. There's there's a lot of gray area there. I think that's right. a really thoughtful viewpoint. I, I have to say, I've never thought of it that way. But it, but I, I'm I, I'm I have to steal on it because I, I I think it is. Um, I mean, we're kind of living in a time, and again, we won't go down this rabbit hole. But we're living in a time where, um, everybody very much most things that happen can can and are perceived in diametrically different ways depending on the person. Uh, so. It is probably, you know, just like with any bit of history, history generally is told by the winners. Um, yeah, it's 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 interesting to think about what else was going on culturally at the time and um, how that may have informed all of that. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I have to, yeah, that's well well said. Well, see, when you, I think when you normalize content, when you puree it down to this easily digestible paste that everyone can process you're diluting the potential of the art form i think it it needs to be done on a case like my my number one saying is nothing is true everything is permitted i want no (laughs) no restrictions on anything because one person's perception of the work is entirely different than the next person's perspective you can't gauge things 
for um, to be easily digestible to everyone, then you get this lukewarm garbage that oh, that's, no. you yeah, know that's I, never going to. Matthew saying what no, Matthew's I know, but is, yeah, as a right. parent though, but it does play into the restrictions or lack thereof of the material. Should you go as full bore as you can, um, and and you know screw the audience we're just going to make the best art we possibly can or are you going to be considerate and say hey there's young eyes on this maybe we should dial it back a bit that's where the ratings come in which i don't even think they conceived yeah. back then i mean there is complexity to all of this because i, I this as as a parent uh, i think that uh i've wrestled with this you know i alluded to this earlier i mean I, I my personal these are my personal views but i you know i think it's it's absurd to me the uh the way that we uh, and I say we meaning like society, the American society, not not me personally in my home, but uh, go out of our way to um, regulate the uh, the ability or to both show and let kids see sexuality, um, which is 100 percent natural. And, and I think we all agree as parents that we want our children to grow up and fall in love and lust and have healthy sexual relationships. That's the great part of being a human. Right. I mean, that's uh, Yet we we go out of our way to kind of like cloak that or, or put layers of, or restrictions about that in a lot of ways uh, and, and and for a long period of time uh, culturally it's like instantiated even with like what's allowed to be shown legally on TV and unless mm -hmm. it's cable but then with violence you know we've always essentially said oh no oh, that all that's all good because it's all fake and 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 I've definitely uh, I think I've definitely been more open to letting kids see like sexuality in a movie or something if it's just naturally there. And not really sweating it, but I will say that that you know I do think about the hypocrisy of like, you know, lots of people, myself included, would prevent like my youngest from watching a lot of violent R-rated movies. But then I think about like he's down playing Grand Theft Auto and Call of Duty all day with his friends, mm -hmm. and yeah. those are incredibly lifelike, where they're actually physically manifesting in their mind. Oh yeah, like I'm killing this person, right? Like yeah. like they are having to in their mind think of how. They're going to click the buttons to make the person on the screen cut someone's head off or, you know, stab them or shoot them in the head. Like, and yet I seemingly am like, okay with that. But then I don't want them to watch a really violent film. And, uh, and there's incredible hypocrisy in that on a lot of levels. But as a parent, like we're always on this journey, you know, you just are doing what you think is right. Uh, and a lot of it probably isn't, or probably wouldn't make a difference you know, another issue is like with 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 you know, I grew up in a as a as an unabashed hip hop fan, and I'm a white dude, and and I I I under I understand the argument that one might make about how it's weird that like we let our kids, our like I'm talking about Caucasian parents, like listen to tons of rap, which uses things like the N word incessantly, and it is a natural tendency to want to sing along with music that you love. And that is natural. That's one of the reasons we like music. Uh, and then to try and teach them that they can't repeat those verses because mm -hmm. they're, and, and it, it is, it is a difficult thing because as I mean, that is the power of music. You, you want to sing along to it. You want, um, and Tana, Tana Hesse Coates, we talked about him last week. He, he gave a great speech about this very issue actually about, why it's not okay to say the n-word even when you're singing a rap song or yeah. rapping a rap song. But my point is, but like, but that, like, understanding it's not okay and working hard to make sure you or your kids as rap fans who are white don't do it doesn't. It's 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 unfair to not acknowledge that like it is the natural tendency 
if you let your kids be inundated with music where the n-word is rampant in the lyrics that that's going to be a hard ask especially for younger kids you know so again i'm not saying like you shouldn't make them abide by it but it's hard that's a hard thing to teach them to do because in every other song they see us singing i just sang earlier like you want to sing the songs you love it's one of the reasons we love music so these are all tricky things as parents you have to kind of like play against one another and i don't know there's easy answers yeah well in in both instances it's a different kind of participation when you're reading a comic book or a novel or actually watching a a film that's passive participation sure whereas if you're playing paying a video game and you are pushing buttons to run over hose and cut people's heads off or if you're you're feigning the words to a rap song that's active participation that's completely different um, well, sure. I do think that, you know, on a societal level, there are components to, you know, the way art is is uh, perceived and the way art is is uh, uh, passed out along uh, among the masses. You know, you you have gatekeepers and you've got, uh, you know, less and less gatekeepers anymore with the internet. But uh, you know, there there are. Um, People who are constantly saying you can't see this, or you know, we only want to show you this. The, I, I think that's going away more and more. Um, you know, there are no blockbuster videos cutting Woody Allen movies at this point. You know, you can see a lot of stuff now that we would have never dreamed of seeing as a kid. Right, uh, that's true. You know, but when you're talking about provocative or transgressive art part of the ecosystem has to be the the outraged party, the people who are provoked Mm, to the mm -hmm. level of anger that they want to shut it down. Mm -hmm. And if you're an artist making that type of work, those are the people that are going to give you the exposure that you need. Yep. And they're a crucial part of it. You have to have that. So there's a documentary on Amazon right now about Mike Diana and his boiled angel comics. And, the Christian moms who were upset about his comics were the greatest thing that ever happened to him Mm. because everybody knew who he was after that. Uh, He was, you know, selling this comic where he'd print up like 200 of them. And then suddenly there are these obscenity charges and these, these Christian groups are coming down on him and, and he, he got the exposure and he riled the, the people that he wanted to rile and, you know, we uh, you see that time and time again with with artists who you know create a piece like Piss Christ, dude. I was just going to bring that up. I was going to say Serrano that, and Maplethorpe. If, yeah, if I was I was a teenager, make, and I remember my grandparents being just beside themselves over those things and and talking to them, saying, "I don't understand. Like, it's just art. Like, why does it bother you?" Mm-hmm. But the fact that it bothered them is why those things still are in our lexicon of of cultural references 30 years later. Yeah. Yeah. That's the key yeah. that turns the engine uh, mm-hmm. or that turns the, you know, the, the, you know what I'm saying? That starts the engine. But um, what was I going to say? Oh, Diana's stuff, especially uh, look what happened with the Wortham trials. They cut out the stuff that maybe could be considered um harmful to children the murder and the bloodshed and everything mm-hmm. but they also removed werewolves vampires zombies and like they, they took out arbitrary stuff like putting a werewolf in a comic is going to disturb a child so for for all of the good things it did it it took a, a 
chunks of well, of the genre away and they had to to work around it like how do you make a horror comic without a werewolf a zombie or a, a, a you know those monsters that are well you create a different type of well, monster, here, right? well that's my, that was my going to be my question is do you think the marvel comics revolution of, would have happened with fantastic four and spider-man if they weren't basically forced into making those types of comics i don't think i mean i think there's a correlation between or I, i've read people you know speculate on that that because of the limitations that the comics authority put on comics that led to new ways of thinking about well what can we put in comics right and the answer was superheroes yeah so which had already been around but not they never sold well not not nearly as well as the crime and the and and then in with the the horror kids the horror boom was what really Mm -hmm. sold but no i think you're right i don't think marvel would have been nearly as the juggernaut it became if not for the Wortham hearings. But again, I got to ask, what would comics have become? Would we be talking about primarily crime and horror comics at this point? Had those hearings never happened? I I, I don't know. Because at the time, I mean, when did the PAA start? 67, 68, around there? Yeah. Like, movies weren't even rated. So what, what well, they... Yeah, what? I think that one thing that I I certainly catch myself doing is... I, you look at your own lifespan and you, you see a period of time that's you know 10 or 15 years and you feel like, oh, that's a long time. But relatively, it isn't. You know, in the grand scheme of things, a 10-year period where things were pretty strict about what you can put into books is, is a relatively small chunk of time compared to all of the stuff that you're seeing now. I mean, I... I you know, I mean, you could see it with people who are very frustrated and losing their minds after being cooped up in their house for two months. And I'm thinking, well, what if you were in London in World War II and you were dealing with bombings for four years? Like, right, right. That's a, that's a long time. Two months of, you know, I, I don't know. I, I try to think in relative terms like that and think, well, is you know, is 54 through, let's say, the first issue of Zap Comics – what, what was that like a 15 year gap seems around there yeah um you know i i don't know i i i'd like to read you know here okay well i'll make this confession i've never read seduction of the innocent i don't even know what's in that book right i've only read what other people have said about what's in that book so i i try to take that into account too like i don't even really know what wortham's thoughts were i've read a lot of articles about it and how bad it was, but I I should actually read that book at some point. It's kind of crazy. I mean, finding um, female genitalia in the folds of a man's shoulder mm. muscles, and saying that it was all cleverly conceived by the wow. by the creators to to uh, you know cloud the minds of impressionable children. Um, I, I just think it's a bunch of hogwash, but I'm on the extreme. I, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, no art should be touched or censored or interpreted, uh, in, in ways that would assume to know what the creators were thinking because they didn't know. He was guessing. This looks like mm-hmm. a, a female crotch. Whoa, wow. They're trying to get one over on our kids. It just, it's just weird. Sure. Um, but at my hands-off approach, I realize that doesn't work for 
percent of you know viewers but i gotta be me um i i i don't know I, is 15 years long enough to to tank a, an art form i or at least divert an art form into a completely different direction in which it was moving. 15 years, like you said, is really not a long time. But, because um, I try and imagine that 15-year span under current conditions, and I probably would have taken my life, you know, two years mm -hmm. into it. Sure. Right. So um, I, I, these are great questions, and I think they require much more... Um, investigation and, and searching than we have time for here but it's a good topic and we should get back to it yeah and you'll be here okay <laughs> well i will let you know about this uh this journal article because it's there's some interesting points brought up about yeah. uh, the power the power of cartoons in particular i'll dig it up i mean i oh. i have it so all right boys what do you say let's wrap it yeah hey everybody You've been listening to 11 O'Clock Comics with our wonderful guests, Matthew Allison and Chris Pitzer. Remember, Kank, remember, Kankor, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's printed, it's out there, it's in the hand. If it's not in the hands of distributors, by the time you hear this, it soon will be. If you didn't pre-order it, get your ass to yeah, what's the matter with you? whatever online uh, store or brick-and-mortar store you can find and get it. Because it's wonderful. It, it's groundbreaking stuff. It'll sear your brain in a very, very good way. Uh, solicit our sponsor, dcbservice.com. They are the absolute best. Maybe you give them a call or get online and, and they'll get it for you if you haven't already ordered it. Um, I, I don't have any in your travels. Again? Yeah. Well, Dude. we just did this. I, uh, <sighs> yeah, okay. and you didn't have anything last time. But it. it Hey, I don't know what to tell you. Um, you know, we're kicking out great content. It can't all be. I, I have nothing for the end. Um, I got. I got one that that will cover you, Vince. So awesome. It's it to me. I'll, I'll I'll cover you. Who better than to cover now? Then yeah. go ahead. Okay. Uh, in your travels, if you can run across copies of the '70s Marvel version of John Carter, Warlord of Mars. Uh, some of the most beautifully drawn books that Marvel put out in the 70s. Um, there were artists on this series, um, Carmine Infantino, Dave Cockrum, Walt Simonson, Gil Kane, Ross Andrew, Mike Vosberg, and uh, Frank Miller. Um, the the MVP of that book, though, was uh, Rudy Nebris, um, inked. All hail. He inked the majority of the book um, and did some of the covers. Um, it, just gorgeous uh, front to back. Did, did you buy those when they came out, Vince? Yes, indeed. I figured you did. Okay. But uh, you can find them in dollar bins sometimes. Um, Aaron Conley turned me on to them last year at a convention. And uh, I think there's there's maybe 28 total. Um, I, I do believe good. Dark Horse collected them. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. A good chunk. If not, if not the entire run, a very good chunk of it, thanks to uh, Mr. Lance Kaiser. Nice, and yeah, it's great stuff. Me at a, at a, yeah, C two eats it one year, just hit me a bunch, but um, yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. And when when Vince was talking about how it was Kirby who um, made him want to pick up a pencil, I, I it's. 
person who gave me the idea that I might be able to draw is Gil Kane. So that's another reason why um, anything he's done is is near and dear to me. In your travels, um, catching up on stuff, uh, I finally finished because I finally found the third and fourth issues. There's, they weren't where the other first two were, but this was uh, Aliens Dust to Dust by Gabriel Hardman and uh, Rain Burrito and letters by Michael Heisler. It is a, um, it's a loving alien story about a mother and her son. Um, although the mother doesn't make it out of the first issue alive because the xenomorph jumps out of... Um, out of her chest and the story is basically uh the son and some of the survivors from uh from a terraforming site making it to um to a hub so they can get into a shuttle and escape the planet um so there's a lot of uh chasing and running and dying um the it's not your typical alien story. I, I, I thought, and, and Gabriel's art, it's, it's absolutely fine for an alien's tale. And that, and, and that isn't exactly the same style you may, uh, you may have seen on his Hulk stuff or his agents of Atlas, um, or, uh, Kinski. This is the, the, the this is a lot more scratchy, a lot more, um, almost raw, but, uh, really like his xenomorphs um yeah it, it's it it moves at a really good clip so i mean there's there's a bunch of characters not everybody makes it out obviously because it is an alien story uh but um but you know each one is is unique serves a purpose to the story and and doesn't uh um because it does move so quick it's not your it's not like you're watching um Cameron's Aliens, where you know you want to see somebody, you want to see Paul Reiser perish just because you get an idea that this guy is not uh, above board. Or you, you're not, you don't get too acquainted with too many people in this story to, to, to get too attached if if somebody doesn't make it um, to the shuttle. Or the person who does make it to the shuttle you really wish didn't. But I I, um, I really, really enjoyed it more than, um, more than I expected to. I, I purchased it primarily for Gabriel, and I'm not disappointed there. Um, but I didn't know how different his alien story would be next to um, Stoko or uh, or the Johnny Christmas adaptation from Gibson's um, script. But no, it was um, still solid stuff. Definitely, definitely recommend it. Uh, I appreciated everything that was put into it. So, Aliens, Dust to Dust. Nice. Mm-hmm. By the way, stoked that uh, to see Volume Two of Gabriel and Karina's Green Lantern in yes, uh, solicits. It's awesome. Uh, in your travels, a book that uh, I have a feeling we'll probably talk about more detail down the road once Dap has read it. I did. Um, oh, you read? I it. mentioned it. I, I mentioned it briefly. Oh, you did. I, I didn't go into it because you didn't read it yet. But yes, oh, okay. Oh, I don't remember even what you said about it. Oh. Huh. Okay. Uh, well, uh, on that note, um, Daps bearing the lead. Uh, I am speaking of November Volume Two, <clears throat> The Gun in the Puddle. Um, I guess you were referring to the uh, digital copy that Image was kind enough to send us. 
Yes. Just because I received the hardcover today nice. in my shipment. Uh, written by Matt Fraction with uh, beautiful art uh, by Elsa Charitier, who is right in line visually with uh, the people uh, I've been just, just loving these days, uh, like Victor Santos and the like. Um, colors by Matt Hollingsworth. And uh, letters by Kurt Ankeny, which is cool because uh, one of the uh, aforementioned uh, uh, Chris Pitzer uh, books that is still in stock was uh, written and drawn by Kurt Ankeny. Same person. Um, anyway, uh, this is quite the departure, I think, from the first volume in pacing um, by design. Uh, the first volume, if those of you remember when we, we did a deep dive, was very much a classic, like setting the table for a grand mystery meeting all the participants, trying to figure out how they all connect together, leading to an aha moment where the, the shit hits the fan. Um, this is very much a very short period of time in this book where the shit has hit the fan, and uh, it's how our three main characters are trying to deal with that reality now. And uh, needless to say, it's not going well for them, um, at least for the majority of the book. Uh, won't get into details here. I want you all to read it yourselves. Um, as I say, fortunately, don't remember what, what Dap had said about it, but um, I mean, I, I love the first volume, so I'm not surprised I love this one. Same creative team, so on one hand, you know what you're getting into. But I was also very much impressed with the fact that I thought that the structure and pacing of this volume was much, much different than the first. And I consider that a quality because um, it, it felt much less like I was just reading the second of four chapters of the thing that was meant to be all all read at once. Uh, it, it just it felt like um, uh, just an entirely different story featuring the same characters and uh and uh, two big thumbs up for me on that. So we've got two down, two to go. For I thought it was just a three-parter. Four-parter. It's, it's four? Okay. Yeah. It was three originally. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I think they've turned it into a four-parter. Yeah. Good stuff. What did you think, Dad, while we're here? Remind me. Um, I It, it definitely... Um... Oh, you said you kind of couldn't get into it, right? Yeah, I I think it was one of those things where I I um because of everybody who did read the first volume and loved it, um, I I thought the uh, I, I respected the the work put into it. I I, I really appreciated the, the drawing was great because it was it it's it's that it's in that Darwin Cook style, but not yeah. as uh, finished or polished, but still yeah. works. Um, and, and Frash's characters are great. You definitely, um, you're, you're all in when it comes to the women in this story because it, 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 they grab you very quickly with, uh, get their hooks into you and into their lives. And it, it's very easy then to, the, the flashbacks, the fact that it's not linear didn't bother me at all. Um, so I, I, I enjoyed it. For what it is, I just, for whatever reason, um, I kind of just expected my socks to get knocked off a little further. I, I, I like that. I want to. I'm going to finish it because I got to see where everything's going. It, it, um, it, it did fall short with me. I just, I expected something a little higher than than I got, but I still enjoyed it. Right, it's coming back to me now. Okay. Fair enough. All righty then. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening. Come back next time. We'll be here for you. If you want more of this, go to Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, and Facebook on there too. One more time, big round of applause for Chris Pitzer and Mr. Matthew Allison. 
Yay. Get your butts out there and get Cancor because it's the awesome sauce. In the meantime, you know what to do. Say goodnight. Should have some kind of accompaniment, but I don't. Yeah, it's good. That's fine. David. Good night. Knock him off his path, Matthew. Just push him. <laughs> get get him all messed up. Start singing. It's so mean. Why would you try to get that whistle? But see, he times it every time. He's got something that uh, I'm not even going to get into it. The I don't. Music I, clock right above me. I, I watching the seconds go by. It's very easy to stay in age. It it is. The seconds go by a lot quicker though. Yeah. All right, but guys, we'll be back next week. Get out of here. We love you. Tell them you love them. Love you. Love you. Love you. Love you. Call me.